everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Although there have been many books on the subject of the early presidents who owned slaves, little attention has been made to our first slave-owning president, George Washington. But as a new book reveals, Washington's commitment to keeping slaves was far greater than you might have expected. Eric Armstrong Dunbar, professor of Black American Studies and History at the University of Delaware, writes about a forgotten piece of history in Never Caught, the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Owner Judge. It's published by Atria, and I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Dunbar to our show today. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Weren't you conducting research on another topic when you discovered this story? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was actually working on my first book, which was about how black women became free in the North. And uh, you know, historians spend a tremendous amount of time in dusty archives, and I was there, and came across a runaway slave advertisement from the president's household. And I thought, hmm, this is this is odd, an advertisement in a newspaper in 1796, and it named a woman who they called Oni Judge and that she had run off from the president's house. And I thought, what an amazing story. What happened to this woman? I must find out. And, and so here I am. But this is a difficult thing to research, isn't it? Some There were some slave narratives, mm-hmm. but not everybody told his or her story. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, for all of us who, who do the work, who do African-American women's history in particular, 
there's a tremendous um, silence in the archives. They're they're not there typically because of literacy rates. Um, so it took a tremendous amount of time tracking her. When uh, Washington became president, he had to move to New York, which was the first capital. Uh, did he bring slaves with him? He did. Um, when Washington came in 1789, uh, Martha followed him shortly thereafter. And in some ways, they, they brought a little bit of home with them. They brought seven enslaved people, men and women. Ona Judge was one of them, uh, to what would be the nation's first capital. And what were her responsibilities in New York? The well, same as they would have been in Virginia? Yeah, they were. She was basically uh, became Martha Washington's sort of top slave, if you will. She had um, come really to work with Martha Washington at the age of 10 at Mount Vernon, came up to the mansion house. And so she was involved in the most intimate of responsibilities, helping her, helping Martha Washington bathe, uh, brush her hair, those kinds of things. But she left family behind at Mount Vernon. She did. She did. She left a mother. She left siblings. Uh, one of the things, and I, I tell this in the book, um, she was at least lucky enough to travel to New York with uh, a brother. And I'm certain that that would have made her mother, Betty, feel a little bit better. As the first president and first lady, the Washingtons were precedent setters, in effect. Um, How did that affect their slaves? Yeah, I think that um, what we see through Washington as a slave owner and as the first president um, he's in this unique position where he's kind of walking the line. He, we clearly know from Washington biographers that he struggles with um, his sort of changing interpretation or feelings about slavery, but he was a Virginian. And the laws that he enacted and that he enforced were laws that did protect slavery. He did flirt with the idea of freeing slaves. He did. Um, he he wrote about his sort of level of of uncomfort, he discomfort. He says at one point he wants to quit, get get quit of his Negroes, is what he writes. On the other hand, he didn't want them to just leave. How did the New Yorkers uh, view slavery at the time? How did they compare with? Washington's home in Virginia. Yeah, it wasn't actually all that odd for for anyone to own slaves. So Washington bringing in seven enslaved people that was that was not unique or different. Um, there were over twenty thousand enslaved men and women in New York at that time. What period. about free blacks? Uh, much smaller. So we're looking in the the three thousand four thousand range. Um, but what you see happening in New York is very different from. What's going on in a place like Philadelphia, where freedom is really taking root? Because of its Quaker roots. Because, but New yeah. York did have the Manumission Society. What was that? They did. And uh, New York and other um, states throughout New England and the Mid-Atlantic had societies that were interested in helping free blacks, that were interested in um, monitoring the system of slavery and f- sort of fiddling with the idea of what do we do with, with newly free people. So is that where uh, Ona Judge heard about the idea of um, becoming free? You know, I think Ona knew about running away and freedom way before she arrived in in New York. There were many who had run off from George Washington from Mount Vernon before she she went went north. So this idea of escape and and freedom was something that she was well accustomed to. She'd heard it much. And then Philadelphia became the capital of the the country, and 
there was a much stronger anti-slavery feeling there. Mm-hmm. In fact, even laws enacted. Yeah, there was. By the time that Ona arrives in Philadelphia, the majority of uh, black people living in that city were free. So she was in the minority as an enslaved person. The law of 1780 in Pennsylvania said that you could only hold a person in bondage up to their 28th birthday. So by the time she arrives, there are very few enslaved people. And she, and I argue this in the book, she sees freedom, she feels freedom, she smells it, she knows it in a way that she never has before. There's a free African society in Philadelphia. And was she interacting with free blacks? Well, certainly the Washingtons would not have wanted her to be mingling with um, free blacks frequently. So she was, she was, there was a a close eye paid, uh, kept to her. But it was almost impossible for her not to walk down the streets and mingle with free black entrepreneurs. It was impossible. So slaves, you couldn't hold a slave past the age of 27, but that wouldn't have applied to the Washingtons because they, because he was president? Well, the law was actually a little different for people who were non-residents. And the law said that if you were a non-resident and you came to Philadelphia and you brought your enslaved men and women, women with you, you could only keep them there in the state for a period of six months. And if they stayed there longer than six months, they were entitled to their freedom. So George knows this. George Washington learns this law. He realizes this is a problem. Uh, and so he and his secretary, Tobias Lear, and Martha Washington write, it's written very clearly from, from George's hand, they make the decision to rotate their slaves in and out of Philadelphia every six months. How did the marrying of Martha Washington's granddaughter, Eliza, affect Ona Judge? Yeah, this, so we find, she finds out, Ona dis- discovers that um, Eliza Law, Martha's granddaughter, was to be married, and she was going to marry, and... Um, Really, Martha Washington wanted to care for her granddaughter as best she could, and she had made the decision to give Ono away to her granddaughter. And at this moment, Ona Judge, after seven years of living in the North and now realizing that she will not return to Virginia, to Mount Vernon, she makes the decision I, to, to leave. But this is despite the fact that George Washington signed the Fugitive Slave Act around yeah, this time. Yeah, yeah. It it's kind of it's ironic that he signs this law in 1793, which gives federal weight to reclaiming your slave across state lines. Um, and so three years later, a, a 22-year-old black woman made the decision to resist the president, and she ran off. She must have had people help her. She says she does. Uh, she, fortunately, she leaves behind two um, interviews at the end of her life. And she's very careful about not offering names because that was a federal crime to assist or help a runaway. She does give us one name. She gives us the name of the ship captain who helped ferry her to freedom. Richard Um, Allen? No, not Richard Allen. He was um, someone who did help her in Philadelphia, but his name was John Bowles. And she says, I only tell his name because he's he's dead. So he's he's beyond uh, punishment. She goes to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She does. But does that mean her being in an area that's a lot more welcoming, that she is free of the constraints of the Fugitive Slave Act? Mm. 
Yeah, no. I mean, the answer to that, the quick answer is no. Um, I thought long and hard about the title of the book, and I never wanted to use the word free or freedom in it because Ona Judge was never free. She was simply never caught. She was a runaway slave. She was, yes, she was a fugitive. And so for the entirety of her life, for more than half a century, she would spend time looking over her shoulder because she was a fugitive. And she was caught. She well, she <laughs> she she was spotted. She was uh, engaged, and I don't want to give the entire story away to the readers, but I do. I think that it's really interesting to to learn how she resists the president. Now, how would somebody like Ona Judge survive now that she is free and mm-hmm. has never had to? I mean, she's worked all her life, but it's not the same thing as working right. uh, within uh, as a free person. For wages, right. She She's clear that she depends upon a network of free black people who offer her shelter, who help her find uh, employment, and who rescue her time and time again when slave catchers come calling. Did she ever get married? She does. Was uh, the process for her to get married difficult? Yeah, there was um, because some of George Washington's agents knew where she was and wanted to kind of stop her in her track. She had to to work hard to get a marriage license, but she does. You know, this is a woman who persists from the moment she walks out of the door of the Washington's house. And she, I was able to find her marriage announcement in the newspaper in January of 1797 of the New Hampshire Gazette. To Jack Staines. Yes. Now, her children were born free. Well, her children were born in New Hampshire, but according to the law, the law followed the apron strings of the women. And so technically, all of Ona Judge's children were enslaved and therefore the property of Martha Washington. Because when George Washington, he wrote in his will that uh, he, or he said that he wanted to free slaves, but he didn't want to leave Martha impoverished, so he kept the slaves. <laughs> well, what's what's interesting is that Martha Washington actually owned more enslaved men and women than did, than did George Washington. And uh, technically, Ona was what was called a dower slave. She had come with Martha Washington to the marriage um, with uh, to George. And so when George Washington does uh, write a will, and after he dies, he makes the decision to emancipate his enslaved men and women upon the death of Martha Washington. So he was unwilling to live without slave labor and did not want his wife to live without the benefits of that as well. But... After that, Ona Judge was free, in effect. No, she actually wasn't. And this is a great um, sort of study in contrast. While George Washington emancipated his slaves, Martha Washington never did the same thing. And so once she died, all of her enslaved men and women were willed to her grandchildren. And so Ona was technically a part of the estate of her grandchildren. How long did Ona live? She lived, after she ran away from the Washingtons, she lived for more than half a century. She outlived everyone. She outlived George Washington, Martha Washington, But not, not up to the Emancipation Proclamation. She did not. Um, Ona dies in 1848, um, mm. but not before leaving, as I said before, two really important interviews with abolitionist newspapers. So she actually lives to see the beginnings of the real kind of strength and rise of an abolitionist movement. 
Was her story an inspiration to other people? I think it was, um, and I think that's part of the reason why it appears in the Granite Freeman in 1845, a newspaper in New Hampshire, and then in the, the most well-known abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. And it appear, her story appears on New Year's Day. Um, and it's it's an amazing account of who she was and her kind of her nerve, her grit, her determination. Would she have been known to people like Frederick Douglass? Interesting. Um, her her narrative or her interview appears in the Granite Freeman one month before Douglas. There's talk about him in this biography, this autobiography that he's written. So he probably would have known her name, but she, of course, she dies uh, shortly afterwards. Erica Armstrong Dunbar is the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Black Studies and History at the University of Delaware. Uh, winner of many awards uh, and the author of uh, articles, a, a number of books. Uh, the one that we have been discussing is Never Caught, the Washington's relentless pursuit of their runaway slave owner judge. President's Day, we're going to take a look at the changing legacy of Thomas Jefferson and his most famous slave, Sally Hemings. Her story was downplayed for years, and now historians widely agree that Jefferson was the father of her six children. Sally Hemings was a seamstress and chambermaid at Jefferson's plantation, Monticello. She never formally received her freedom. In the 1940s, the room in Monticello, where Hemings likely lived, was turned into a bathroom for visitors. Now it's being restored as part of a larger effort at Monticello to reconstruct the places where enslaved people lived and worked. Krista Dierkseide is a historian at Monticello. We called her up to ask about the renovation. We've just been in the process of peeling back that sort of 20th century iteration, um, and we've found lots of really cool and interesting things. Um, we found a fireplace, so if you can imagine that this may have been Sally Hemings's fireplace, uh, where she and her children would have warmed themselves in the evenings. We found the original brick floor. We found the original walls and even traces of some shelves. So slowly in peeling back what used to be a restroom, we're discovering a life in this space that we think was Sally Hemings. And as you uncover the physical remnants of this life, what do you hope to add that will let visitors better understand the contours of the life this woman lived? Well, Sally Hemings has been hugely important in the American imagination for over 200 years. But mostly she's seen through Jefferson. And I think we wanted to, for the first time, devote a space that's just about her, that's seeing her as a person, as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter. Uh, we want to include her four children in this space. And although we talk about her 
we don't have a space that's just about her. And I think that's what we want this room to be. I understand Sally Hemings was not even acknowledged at Monticello until the early 1990s. Why was her story excluded for so long? I think Sally Hemings just wasn't mentioned until then because it was viewed as something that could taint Jefferson's reputation. But I think she is a huge part of the story at Monticello, and we want to tell an accurate, holistic story of what this place was. The nature of the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings has been debated. Of course, she was a slave who was owned by Thomas Jefferson. How does Monticello plan to address this very delicate topic? Well, Ari, there's so much we don't know about this relationship. But there are things that we do know. For example, we know that it was a 40-year relationship. We know that it resulted in six children. One of the things that visitors are surprised to learn is that she and Jefferson's wife, Martha, shared the same father, the slave trader, John Wales. So that actually made Jefferson's wife and Sally Hemings half-sisters. The Hemings story is only part of the restoration happening at Monticello. Can you describe the general mission of this $35 million project? So what we realized is that even though we were telling the story of slavery on the mountaintop, the area of the house, nobody could actually see anything visible. There were no remnants of slavery that visitors could encounter. So what we're doing is to restore the landscape of slavery, and we're recreating or restoring spaces where enslaved families would have worked, would have lived, and made it the dynamic place that it was. Krista Dierkseide is a Monticello historian. Thanks for talking with us this President's Day. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Haiti is on the list of what's supposed to be. Haiti, the people call, who are called Haitians, predominantly are people who are classified as non-white, who they're not supposed to ever have anything under the system of white supremacy except punishment <laughs> yeah. or being arrogant enough under Tucson to think that you, with your military skills, can take us over or tell us what to do. So many a, a historian has said that the reason Haiti is in the shape that it's in now and sort of like the head wagon people of the world, you might say, mm -hmm. everybody kind of looks on them with great pity. It's because the white supremacists made that decision. Now to Haiti, where there's talk of UN peacekeepers finally leaving the country. They've been there for 13 years since a 2004 coup that overthrew former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Now, this isn't the first time discussions have been brought up about the peacekeepers leaving. Some soldiers have been tied to sexual abuse allegations and the cholera epidemic that killed nearly 10,000 Haitians. This when the country was already reeling from the 2010 earthquake. But perhaps even more important, Haitian leaders say that they are ready to do the job on their own. We wanted to know more about this, so we called Jacqueline Charles, as we often do, to tell us about Haiti. She's the Caribbean correspondent with the Miami Herald, and she's with us now from member station WLRN in Miami. Jacqueline Charles, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. So what has been the view of the peacekeepers in the country over the years? Has their presence been generally welcomed or not? 
their presence has not been generally welcomed. And it really depends on who you talk to. Some people see the UN presence in Haiti as an occupation of a sovereign country. But at the same time, if you talk to business people, they will tell you very quietly that, you know what, it's been a good thing that the peacekeepers have been here because there's been the psychological impact, at least in recent years, in terms of the sense of stability. But we have to remember the context in which the peacekeepers went to Haiti. This was 2004. We had armed gangs. The place was basically ungovernable and they brought in security. And so we are now 13 years later, and the question is, does Haiti still need a United Nations force in the country? Who is initiating these discussions about the peacekeepers leaving? Is it the Haitian government or is it the United Nations? And what makes this different? I take it from your reporting that you think this is different this time. It is different this time. I mean, this is the United Nations and the member states. I mean, we have to remember there are a lot of crises around the world. They need money. This operation in Haiti is $346 million a year. And over the last couple of years, every time there's been an attempt to discuss leaving or an attempt to leave, something has happened. So here we are today, just a couple of weeks into the inauguration of a new president. And the UN and member states are saying, you know what, now is time. And they're not going to fully leave. What they're talking about is the military arm and saying it's time for us to pull out because there are other places around the world that need a UN force. And this is the only place in the Western Hemisphere that has a UN peacekeeping mission on the ground. Who will take their place or what will take their place? Has there been an effort to develop, what, a a national police force? Will it be the Haitian army? And that is where the real debate and the sticking point is. I mean, the United States and the United Nations, as well as Canada, they've invested billions of dollars in Haiti's national police. The last time the UN left, which was in 1999, within a year or two of their departure, the Haitian national police basically collapsed. So today they're saying, you know what, we don't want to go back here again. We've invested billions of dollars in strengthening this police force. They've proven that they can provide security, but we still need to continue to do this. But what's happening now is that there are others on the ground who wants the UN's presence replaced with an army. Their argument is that the Haitian National Police just cannot do the job by itself and that this is a sovereign country and we need an army. So what would you say is the general atmosphere? The general atmosphere is sort of a wait and see. People want change. They want to see an improvement in their lives. The country had 0.8% economic growth last year. Everything just grinded to a complete halt, and they're ready to just sort of move on. That's Jacqueline Charles. She's the Caribbean correspondent for the Miami Herald. She's reported on Haiti for years. She's speaking with us from member station WLRN in Miami. Jacqueline Charles, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Let's elaborate on this. For number nine, it just said when black people brought the trial in this country, we want them tried in a code of law, not out on the street for some pig, but in a code of law by jury of the peers as specified by the Constitution of the United States of America. Simple Constitution of right to be tried by jury of your peers. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Texas death row inmate. Dwayne Buck was sentenced to death back in 1997. But today, the justices said that sentence was tainted by racial prejudice because Buck's own lawyer brought on an expert witness who testified that he was more likely to be a danger in the future because he was black. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Dwayne Buck shot and killed his ex-girlfriend in front of her three children while she begged for her life, and he shot and killed the man he thought she was sleeping with. While the jury easily convicted Buck, it had trouble deciding whether to sentence him to death or life in prison. The jurors were out for two days, focusing apparently on the question of dangerousness. 
Under Texas law, a jury cannot sentence a defendant to death unless it unanimously concludes he poses a future danger. During the sentencing phase of the trial, Buck's own lawyer put on the witness stand psychologist Walter Quijano, who testified that statistically Buck was more likely to commit violent crimes in the future because he is black. The prosecution then drove that point home during cross-examination. Three years later, a death penalty case involving the same psychologist and similar testimony went to the Supreme Court. Texas conceded error in the case and found six more, including Bucks, in which psychologist Quijano had testified linking race to violence. The state attorney general pledged to allow sentencing appeals in all of those cases. It delivered on that promise in five, but reneged in Bucks' case after a new attorney general, now Governor Greg Abbott, took office. Buck still tried to appeal his sentence, but he lost. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, based in Houston, refused to grant what's called a certificate of appeal. The Supreme Court has rebuked the Fifth more than once before over its refusal to grant these certificates in capital cases. And today, the justices, by a 6-2 vote, slapped the Circuit Court hard in the Buck case. Writing for the court majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said the Fifth Circuit was wrong in denying the certificate of appeal and wrong on the merits of the appeal as well. Roberts said that the psychologist's testimony appealed to a particularly noxious strain of racial stereotype, namely that of black men as violence-prone. The fact that it was the defendant's own lawyer who introduced this testimony to begin with is proof that Buck was denied the effective assistance of counsel, said the chief justice. Roberts rejected the lower court's conclusion that the effect of the racial testimony was so small as to be trifling. Relying on race to impose a criminal sanction, he said, poisons public confidence in the judicial process, injures not just the defendant but the law as an institution and the community at large. Dissenting from the decision were the court's only black justice, Clarence Thomas, and Justice Samuel Alito. They said the appeal should not have been permitted to go forward. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has... I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. The Seattle Office of Civil Rights says there's a growing trend of housing discrimination against people who identify as Muslim. The agency has also found that people of color are treated differently than white people when they try to rent a place to live. KQAW's Patricia Murphy reports on race and equity and has the story. Seattle Office of Civil Rights Director Patricia Lawley says housing discrimination is an insidious problem. In the city of Seattle, we don't acknowledge our bias, uh, and very often a landlord may not even be conscious of their implicit bias. Lolly says her office does trainings to educate landlords about the law, but renters need to be aware as well. An African-American family, for example, they might be told about the need for their credit history. They may be told that they have to do a, a criminal history background check. That's okay if every prospective renter gets the same treatment. It's a problem if they don't. And even those who may be treated differently often don't come forward. How would they know that the landlord did not show them all of the units that were available? And so they may walk away with disappointment. They may walk away with suspicion. But it, it typically isn't enough for that person to come into our office. That's why we do testing. Like in 2016, when the city compared the reports from white housing testers and black housing testers. In over 60% of those cases, there is 
some evidence, and it may not be sufficient evidence in which to charge a case, but there is evidence that people are treating uh, an African-American differently than they're treating the white tester. And most recently, the office has seen an increase in housing and other discrimination against people who identify as Muslim. Jasmine Sammy is with the Seattle chapter of the Center for American-Islamic Relations. She thinks there's more discrimination toward Muslims than is being reported. In some cases, she says, the discrimination has gone on for years, but people are reluctant to come forward. We don't want trouble. We found a house. It's a good rent. You know what, if the manager is giving me a hard time because of my parking spot or if they're being mean to me, I just want to live, let me go. Of the nearly 200 civil rights cases investigated by the city each year, more than 40 percent involve housing. Nearly all of them settle. In some cases, there's a monetary award to the victim. For a landlord, being investigated for discrimination can be an expensive problem. A complaint alone Even if it proves to be unfounded, you're looking at thousands of dollars in legal costs um, just to defend your good name. Sean Martin is with the Rental Housing Association of Washington. He says it's critical for rental property owners to be very clear about the law and adhere to it. You always want to put your best foot forward and just try to steer clear of any issues if possible. So, you know, always being proactive and preventing uh, any problems from coming up in the first place is, is definitely the best way to go. Martin says they work closely with the city to provide training for rental property owners. Patricia Lawley with the Office of Civil Rights says when landlords do get in trouble, often they're surprised, chagrined, and interested in what they can do to ensure that their application process is fair. It's a start, she says, but moving the needle on discrimination is a challenge that requires more than a legal framework to solve. We have laws, and we've had some of these laws on the books for many, many years, and yet discrimination continues in the most progressive city in America. Real change, she says, requires a better understanding about how racism is at work in Seattle. I'm Patricia Murphy, KUOW News. All I'm saying is that the hard genre is historical for excluding the African-American element. If you're a fan of sketch comedy, then you very likely know the name Jordan Peele. Along with his partner Keegan-Michael Key, he wrote and performed in the show Key and Peele that ran for five seasons on Comedy Central and earned both a Peabody Award and two primetime Emmys for its hilarious and deeply pointed take on race and culture. And one thing you might have picked up if you watched the show is the way it sometimes mixed humor and horror, the sketch about the zombies who refused to eat black people comes to mind. So now Jordan Peele has taken that strategy with a new movie, Get Out, to a new level. He wrote, directed, and produced it. It's already being called a bombshell social critique, fearless, and a must-see after its debut at the Sundance Film Festival. It comes out on Friday. And Jordan Peele is with us now to tell us more about it. He's at our studios at NPR West. Jordan Peele, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Well, I, I think I have to start with congratulations on everything. You've had a busy couple months you wrote and co-starred in the comedy Keanu with your friend Keegan-Michael Key. And I mm-hmm. also hear, if I may say, you're expecting your first child. Is that uh, true? Well, congratulations on all of that. Thank you. It's it's absolutely uh, terrifying and wonderful at the same time. Even more terrifying than making this movie? Oh, absolutely. As a horror fan, it's like kids are scary. Like I'm already dreading waking up in the middle of the night to see a child standing in the doorway or something. <laughs> Daddy... You know, I don't know. <laughs> well, as a as a parent myself, you're right. <laughs> and you have no idea. So. I have no idea. Okay. You have no idea. But anyway, so let's get back to the movie. So some okay. people have called Get Out the most woke horror film of 2017. How did you get the idea for this? 
2017, this is the only woke horror movie of all time, uh, save for Night of the Living Dead. But that's just it. You know, I felt like race has not been dealt with in, you know, my favorite genre, which is horror. Every other human horror has its sort of classic horror movie to, to go along with it. So I kind of wanted to fill the gap in that piece of the genre conversation. The opening scene starts with something very disturbing. It's a, a black man walking alone in a leafy green suburb, attacked out of nowhere. You don't know who attacked him at that point, but it's echoes of, if I may say, say Trayvon Martin, for example. I wondered, if that what you had in mind? Obviously, the tone of this movie was a big question mark, and we had to get it right because it, it is dealing with subject matter that hits home to a lot of people. But I wanted to represent the fact that what many people may not understand is the fear that a black man has walking in a white suburb at night it is real. And I wanted to put the audience in that position so they could see it and feel it. And then you take it to another level. At the core of the story is Chris, who is black, goes home with his white girlfriend, Rose, to meet her family. And they're very polite and seemingly liberal. And they like, like to make a point of telling him how much they love President Obama, for example. <laughs> but there's just something that is just off. Uh, <laughs> but that anybody who's been in an interracial relationship, I think, can relate to that kind of feeling out like, okay, what's going on? And you want to do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, you know, I, I took a lot of cues from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. The first act of the film kind of resembles that movie. And, and one of the reasons that movie, I think, was so successful and, and important was because, you know, aside from being a racial commentary, Anybody can relate to the fear of meeting your potential future in-laws for the first time. It's, it's a very scary thing and you want to present yourself right. But when you add race to that equation, there is this fear. If they don't know that I'm black, for example, um, I don't want to see them realize, oh, this is not what I had expected. So in this movie, the parents are very welcoming. They don't skip a beat. They don't care about the color of his skin, which to me was like almost creepier <laughs> because of what we know this world to be. But then the film at some point takes this kind of sharp U-turn where it goes into another fear or shall I call it resentment that many African-Americans have, that they feel that white America doesn't just want to enjoy the talents that black people have. They want to be black people without actually having to pay the social price. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're really talking about the party sequence. Chris arrives at this party, which is populated with Rose's grandfather's friends, all of whom are white. You know, everybody wants to connect with him. Everybody wants to say, hey, you know, I, I know Tiger Woods or feel his muscles. It's all a form of the very true cliche of, um, can I touch your hair? Does any of this come from your own life experience? My wife, Chelsea Peretti, is, you know, of course, uh, white. And uh, I, I did write this movie before I met her without taking it that literal, this is about the African-American experience. It's about the feelings of being an outsider, of being the other that we confront, and also the presumptions that I make as a black man about others. Well, obviously, you know, I'm dying to know how it went when you met your wife's parents 
for the first time. Clearly, you survived the experience. Yeah, they're cool. But they're cool. They're pretty. They're pretty cultured uh, uh, people. None of their and, friends um, felt up your muscles. I don't have muscles, so that's probably why. <laughs> but um, my in-laws are uh, amazing people. Very intelligent. Very warm. Very empathetic. Yeah, I think one of the big problems with how we talk about race, though, is us versus them. They're racist. I'm not. This movie is not about this idea that white people are racist and no one else is or that white people are villains. We all have issues to deal with in regards to race internally. It's part of being a human being, unfortunately, is the urge to prejudge people. So I think the only way we can really approach this is to say, look, this is a human trait and it's how we as individuals choose to deal with our own internal racism and face it. That's our only way out. Jordan Peele, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. She's in critical condition. Getting the best medical care money can buy. I looked into some of your mishaps over the past five years. And what you find, that four mil a year I bring in? File an incident report by the end of the day. Hey, don't you hold your breath, Black Ivy. Oh, I get it. So you think, because I grew up in a wealthy family, attended Ivy League schools, and married well, that I'm not down, not black? My ability to survive and my intellect are both very black, Mr. Diamond. My point is simple. I don't answer to you, and I never will. My point is simple as well. You do as I asked you. Earlier this month, we told you about The Quad. It's BET's latest scripted offering set at a fictional, historically black university, Georgia A&M. We spoke with the star of this series, the celebrated Broadway and movie actress Anika Noni-Rose, herself a graduate of an HBCU. And she told us the series was meant to showcase both the glories and the challenges of the HBCU experience. But since then, the longtime leader of a real HBCU, Hampton University President William Harvey, has published a scathing open letter about the show. And he called upon the show to change its tone and for other graduates of HBCUs to speak out. Because we highlighted the program earlier, we thought it fair to reach out to President Harvey to hear more about his concerns, and he's with us now from Hampton's radio station, WHOV. President Harvey, thanks so much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. So in your letter, you cite many, many objections that you have about the show. The fact that there's only one scene actually taking place in a classroom in the premiere segment, for example. The fact that the band director thinks he runs the college. Um, You say in your letter, it depicts a place where faculty, students, and administrators are driven by sex, alcohol, marijuana, low self-esteem, parties, and a preoccupation with music. So it's a long list. But if you could sum it up, what is the thing that pushed your buttons most, that pushed you to write that letter? Well, actually, you said it in your opening. To me, it is an incredibly disparaging depiction of um, HBCUs. It's largely devoid of uh, academics, yet it salaciously includes scenes about president having sex with a student, an insubordinate uh, band director. And I will say to you that if uh, my band director told me what That band director indicated he'd been fired before he left my office, and I suspect that that would have happened in in most instances. I mentioned earlier we spoke with the star of the program, Anika Noni-Rose, who plays the university's president. You know, she is also a graduate of an HBCU, and we asked her how her experience uh, may have informed the role. You know, her argument is to the question of balance, that it's important to address some of the things that are addressed in this series, like bullying or hazing and things of that sort. I'll just play a clip from our conversation earlier. I think it's really important when we talk about showcasing 
a particular piece of culture that we don't dip it in sugar. I think if we're only showing one side of it, if we're only showing the elevated sections of it, then we aren't telling a truth. We aren't telling the story. How would you respond to that? Well, she's absolutely correct. And they're only showing one side. She's making my argument. She's showing only the salacious side. So why not show both sides? The president of BET, uh, Deborah Lee, the chair, was approached by Ebony Magazine for a comment about this. And she made the argument that it is fiction. And if you don't like it, don't watch it. Well, you know, you're right. But despite the fact that it's uh, fictional, it's uh, real life. So even though it's fictional, why not show a balance? That's William Harvey. He's the president of Hampton University, an historically black university in Virginia. He wrote a letter to BET citing his objections to their new scripted series, The Quad. We spoke to him from WHOV at Hampton University. President Harvey, thanks so much for speaking with us. You're very welcome and look forward to speaking with you again. We move into Mississippi, and you know how that spell. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I. Crooked letter, crooked letter I. When you were a kid, how did you learn how to spell Mississippi? Was it like this? M I crooked letter, crooked letter I. Crooked letter, crooked letter I. Humpback, humpback I. <laughs> yep, that's how we learn how to spell Mississippi. Because it was a crooked letter. It wasn't straight. It was crooked. That's Terrence Johnson. He's a junior at the University of Mississippi, a.k.a. Ole Miss. The school became notorious for its fierce riots over integration when its first black student, James Meredith, enrolled in 1962. African-Americans now make up nearly 13 percent of the student body there, and Terrence Johnson is among them. NPR's Melissa Block spent a day with him to talk about race, history, and his sense of place in Mississippi for her series, Our Land. Terrence's day starts early. So listen, you have X to the fourth minus 81. By 7.30 in the morning, he's already in a high school classroom, perched backwards on a chair, tutoring one-on-one in algebra. He's going to be prime. Boom. See, all you had to do was think about it and stop being lazy. Terrence tutors as part of his work-study program, but he also likes that he's helping to catch vulnerable high school kids helping them fight to believe in themselves. Oh, I was right. Hallelujah. So we are on our way to the University of Mississippi. Terrence sports a diamond stud in his ear, a tiny one in his nose. He wears his hair in a high-top fade, shaved on the sides, long and coily on top. He's a journalism major with a minor in African-American studies. When he graduates next year, he'll become the first in his immediate family to complete college. And when I got here, I felt like I just fit. That's no small thing. We sit down to talk on campus behind the Lyceum. That's the administrative building that was at the center of the riots in 1962. The town of Oxford is an armed camp following riots that accompanied the registration of the first Negro in the university's 118-year history. Those riots left two people dead, hundreds injured, and they left an indelible mark on the university's reputation. Now a statue of James Meredith stands in this spot. He's cast in bronze, mid-stride, about to walk through an open door. He transcended so much in the fact that he had the will to integrate a university like this in Mississippi that has such a rich and chaotic history. The fact that he was willing to make such a stance, that will always be with me. But old prejudices die hard. 
Just three years ago, students at Ole Miss woke up to find a noose tied around the Meredith statue's neck. Two white fraternity brothers later pleaded guilty to civil rights charges. Yeah, I heard about it. It was... threw me off for a minute. Terrence was a high school senior at the time, about to enroll at the university. Because I was just like, it's 2000 and what? You know, what year is it again? So the fact that they even had the audacity to disrespect this monument um, will always baffle me. It will always baffle me. Did it make you think, maybe I don't want to go to University of Mississippi? For a moment. I didn't feel like it was going to, at the end of the day, derail me from what I wanted to do. And that determination has taken Terrence far. He comes from the tiny town of Sugarlock out in the countryside. I grew up in a single-wide trailer, three bedrooms, two baths, living room, partial dining room, and a kitchen. And it is a palace. And I love every inch of it. Why is it a palace to you? Because... It's safety. It's a haven. It is relaxation. It's blessings. It's good music on Sunday and Saturday mornings. It's good fried chicken on Tuesday nights. It is a palace, a true palace. Terrence's mom works as a phlebotomist. His dad is a welder. His parents would always stress to him, you got to go be great. I knew Sugarlock was small, but no one... No one ever made me feel small, you know. When Terrence graduated from the prestigious Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science, a high school for gifted students, he saw his father cry for the first time ever. It meant the world to him, Terrence tells me. Now in college, his schedule is packed. He sings in several choirs, he mentors, tutors, writes a newspaper column. He's active in the LGBT community and in black student groups. Terrence says on campus, students often still subdivide by race, like in the dining hall. You will walk in at the very front, nothing but black people, always, every single solitary day. And at the back, nothing but white people, every single solitary day. It was just last year that the university dropped the tradition of playing Dixie at football games, when some students would shout, and the South shall rise again. Also last year, the university added a plaque to a Confederate monument, which stands not far from the James Meredith statue. That plaque now includes references to slavery and the university's divisive past. I walk with Terrence Johnson inside an archway in front of the James Meredith statue, and he reads from a quotation that's etched on the wall. Meredith wrote this in his memoir in 1966. Always, without fail. Regardless of the number of times I enter Mississippi, it creates within me feelings that are felt at no other time. Joy, hope, love. But it's telling that that quotation has been sanitized, whitewashed, if you will. What's not on the wall is the part where Meredith described the sadness he also felt in Mississippi. Sadness, he wrote, because I am immediately aware of the special subhuman role that I must play because I am a Negro. For Terrence Johnson, that ambivalence still rings true in his home state. You have a love-hate relationship with it. You know, all these incidents that have happened throughout the years, even way back to Emmett Till, you know, there are moments where it's like you do feel subhuman in Mississippi. But at the end of the day, it's still, this is just as much 
Marseille as it is theirs. Before we leave, Terence reads the final words of that James Meredith quotation. I have always felt that Mississippi belonged to me, and one must love what is his. James H. Meredith, 1966. What do you think about that? I feel the exact same way. Yep. Because I come from Mississippi. I am very protective of it. It made me everything that I am and everything that I will ever be. And I've always been proud of the fact that I was from Mississippi. Mississippi doesn't feel like anywhere else. It's beautiful. It's engulfing. Sometimes it's enraging. But it's still beautiful. Melissa Block, NPR News, Oxford, Mississippi. Canada. We should move to Canada. So, you know, I didn't really think leading up to this Black History Month that I would be spending a whole lot of time talking about a white woman who's an elected official using the N-word against us and then trying to explain that she should continue to oversee children's education. Of course, that's exactly what's been going on for months now with Nancy Elgie, a trustee within the York Region District School Board, or shall I finally say a former trustee? Because after months of angry outcry and backlash from the black community and from others, after politicians weighing in after being silent for a very long time and saying finally that Nancy LG should do the right thing, as they said, and resign, Nancy LG did do that. She waited till the Friday afternoon before a long weekend, of course, and then she dropped the news on us that she would, in fact, be stepping down from her position within the YRDSB. Yes, this is a huge victory. For Charlene Grant, who was on this program a few weeks ago talking about the fact that this slur was directed at her and that she wasn't satisfied with Nancy LG's apology, even though she accepted it. I had it on, on Charlene and her husband, Garth, and they were very adamant that Nancy LG take responsibility for what she did. And that's finally come to pass. But before we close this chapter... I, I want to say a couple of things about what I've learned. The first thing that I want to say is that it should never have come to this. And it's such a shame that people had to spend their time and energy trying to hold Nancy LG to account for something that was obviously so damaging and hurtful to our community. That's the first thing. The second thing is related, though, because I watched the way that people talked about this issue while it was going on. And I noticed a very clear difference. What I noticed was that there seemed to be two camps of people. One camp of people really wanted to focus a whole lot on the reasons and excuses that Nancy Elgie was giving for why she ever uttered this word at a black woman at a public meeting. And people were really interested in debating that. So Nancy Elgie said, you know, I had a head injury back last year and uh, my head injury makes me mix up my words. So when I said the N word to this woman, I was just confusing my words because of a head injury. Well, of course, that's nonsense. But it was the kind of nonsense that I heard being debated over and over again. And a lot of people, whether they agreed with that explanation or not, really focused a lot of their attention talking about that. But then I found that there were others who were upset more by lies, not just by the horrendous nature of this comment, 
that LG made, but by the lies that followed it. The Toronto Star went to Nancy LG's home after it was reported she had done this and asked her point blank, did you use this racial slur? And Nancy LG's response was, that accusation has no merit. It's interesting how she ended up apologizing for something that she originally said had no merit. But it was that lie, that deception, that attempt to not take responsibility that got me and so many other people, particularly black people, so upset. And the lies continued. The lies just went on and on. I was at the board meeting that they had on Monday where myself and many other black folks who were in attendance were really, really giving it to the York Region District School Board and telling them how frustrated we were that they were not dealing with this, that they had not really been strongly calling on Nancy LG as a board uh, to resign. Well, I had an interaction with one of the trustees of the YRDSB, whose name is Linda Aversa. She's a trustee for Vaughan Region. And after we had really spoken out against the board at that meeting, Linda Aversa came out to try and shake my hand after it was all over. You know, I had been speaking out very forcefully in this meeting. And she came out to shake my hand. And I refused. I said, I don't really need to shake your hand. I'm happy to speak with you, but I don't want to shake your hand. And uh, Linda Aversa, the trustee for Vaughn, told me that I was being very rude to her. And when I replied that she has been incredibly rude to our community, she said, well, how is that? And I said, well, you've been watching one of your colleagues who called us this word for months, and you haven't said anything. You've been silent. And Linda Aversa's response to me was, I haven't been silent. It's the lies. It's coming to our faces as black people after we have to do so much work in the first place to hold you accountable, and then telling us to our faces, oh, no, I wasn't silent. Whatever Linda Aversa did in her private time is none of my business. Whatever she might have said to Nancy Elgie or anybody else in private is not my concern because Linda Aversa and all of the members of the York Region District School Board are public officials. And so I realized at that meeting that black people have to do double duty because not only do you have to stand up and fight for things that are so common, so easy to understand, so clearly wrong, not only would you have to stand up and fight and waste our time and our energy in order to fight back against the racism that still exists today, but then we have to comfort people who we're holding to account because they feel bad and want to come and continue lying to our faces. Stuart LG, the son of Nancy LG, same thing. I, I, I said, you know, your mom denied that this happened. And he said, well, I don't want to talk about that. That's what really got us upset. It wasn't just the story. It was the lies that protected this woman and her power. And now that she's gone, I hope everybody remembers that there are still huge systemic problems in York Region which allowed this to happen in the first place. In Virginia, them guns all bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns all bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns all a local college campus shaken to the core over a rap video posted on the internet. Many are calling it a racist rant. The person at the center of it showcasing ODU in a bad light. It has students, school officials, and civil rights leaders demanding answers. 
People across ODU's campus are stressing the video does not speak for the community. Meantime, university police are trying to hunt down where it came from. The video appeared on YouTube up until this morning. It portrays someone using racist language with a slur on its title and wearing an ODU t shirt. Everyone's question well, who is it? Ten on your side's Matt Gregory joins us with how this is being handled. Matt? And no one has confirmed this as an ODU student, but students I talked to said they're outraged the person would even pretend to represent the university while spewing a message of hate. It's a vile music video so hateful we have to censor most of it. All you want to do is collect welfare and get on Section 8. In it, a woman wearing an ODU sweatshirt encourages the viewer to kill all African Americans. Hang it. White power. Some ODU students woke up to it. This is the first thing that I saw. My heart was pounding. As the video goes on, the woman wears a President Trump mask and waves a gun, then puts a cigarette out on a Black Lives Matter sign. Three minutes of hate speech that sent shockwaves across campus. Why did she feel that that was the way to say it and representing ODU in that way? SGA President Rachel Edmonds says the message of dividing has been drowned out by the outrage from students. I didn't think that kind of hate actually existed in people. Campus leaders like Monte Taylor of ODU's NAACP says it didn't spark anger in him. You know, people who have that much hatred in their heart, um, you know, I feel bad for them. That's the theme seen across the student body. This is not something we tolerate. Hate is not something that our campus um, condones, tolerates, or endorses. According to a spokesperson for the university, ODU police have opened an investigation. No one has confirmed if the woman is an ODU student and YouTube removed the video. Regardless, students say they'll take the divisive video as a challenge to come together. You've seen today that our students. We, we come together in times of, you know, hate, and, and we, we don't stand for that, but we're going to stand up together. The ODU NAACP will have a safe place meeting. That starts at 7. 10 on your side's Liz Kilmer is there, and we'll have more tonight at 10 and 11. In the newsroom, I'm Matt Gregory. 10 on your side. Thank you, Matt. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. Right now at 6, an NBC10 exclusive. She's getting away with killing my son. A South Jersey mother outraged that the driver who hit and killed her son will not be locked up. I want her to get life in prison. I never want her to see the, the, the son come up. The 16-year-old boy died in a hit-and-run crash last year. Only NBC10 is inside the courtroom as the driver is sentenced today. And good evening. I'm Jim Rosenfield. And I'm Jacqueline London. First up at 6, that sentencing happened less than two hours ago. The decision, no jail time at all. The victim's family says they are crushed tonight. And they spoke exclusively to NBC10 Sydney Long. She's joining us live in Camden tonight with more. Sydney. Well, Jim and Jacqueline, good evening. Susan Highland initially faced 20 years behind bars, but instead of going to jail, the judge ruled today that as soon as a drug treatment bed is located, that she will have the handcuffs taken off her here at the Camden County Jail, and she will be transferred to a drug rehab inpatient facility. It could go down as early as tomorrow. She took my brother. One by one. To keep her in there for the rest of her life. Loved ones of Quaison Turner stood up to Susan Highland. She is the woman who was behind the wheel the night he was killed. She left my 16-year-old son on the side of the road with his head 
almost off his shoulder. They spoke up begging and pleading with Judge Edward McBride for justice. If she's allowed into drug court, she's going to kill somebody else's kid. She might even kill somebody close to you. On March 28th last year, Highland struck Quazon Turner on Route 130. She never stopped. She hid in a Camden home, conspiring with others to burn the car. It was a secret call to 911 by her niece. I was a passenger in an accident um, and it hit me that led to her arrest. Highland's fate in what legal analysts consider an unusual or rare occurrence is being decided in drug court. There is no question that there was violence, the ultimate violence. Ultimately, the judge sentenced Highland to drug court inpatient treatment. The family gave up, walking out of court more heartbroken than they arrived. She will pay a $450 fine, have to surrender her license, provide DNA samples. Failure to do all of the above could result in time behind bars. She's getting away with killing my son taking my son up out of this world for no reason at all. I never want her to see the, the, the son come up regular ever again. Now, because Highland's arrest was delayed by a matter of hours, it's unclear if she was high or drunk the night Quezon was killed. She has admitted to battling drugs all her life. She also pled guilty to fleeing the scene of an accident and causing a fatality the night he was killed. Turner's family says that Highland ran and hid that night, but today's ruling is her ultimate escape from justice. We're live in Camden tonight. I'm Sydney Long, NBC10 News. Hey! This is my rifle! There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there is no enemy. But peace. Amen. From the nation now, last night an Indian engineer was gunned down in a bar outside Kansas City. Police and the FBI are looking at whether or not it may be a hate crime. Kenneth Craig reports. Community members are bringing flowers to Austin's Bar and Grill in Olathe, Kansas. Wednesday night, police responded after a man opened fire in the packed bar. One witness says the gunman yelled, get out of my country before the shooting. 32-year-old Srinava Kuchabotla was killed and 32-year-old Alok Motosani injured. Also hurt, 24-year-old Ian Grillot, who tried to stop the shooter. Thought I heard nine shots. I expected him, his magazine to be empty. Um, so I got up and proceeded to chase him down. And I got behind him and he turned around and fired around at me. Police caught up with the suspect, 51-year-old Adam Purinton, hours later and 70 miles away in Clinton, Missouri. Three officers responded to the scene and uh, his demeanor was calm and, and just compliant. Purinton, who once served in the Navy, is charged with murder and attempted murder. The FBI is working with local police to determine if this was a hate crime. If this violent crime is determined to be bias-motivated, 
We will continue to conduct the investigation jointly. The victim's family, living in India, is concerned that it was. Heat crime is normally, we have never heard this. I think uh, probably after Trump, I think we are seeing this a couple of times now. Friends have started a GoFundMe page to help the family. Kenneth Craig, Channel 2 News. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. All right, Stephanie, thank you very much. Right now, this time of day, Bible study underway on a Wednesday at several AME churches in the Low Country, and one of those churches is named in newly released court documents related to Dylan Roof's federal murder trial. Prosecutors say the convicted Charleston church shooter drove to another Low Country AME church after his attack downtown. Karina Bolster talked with a member of the Jedburgh Church following this news. Branch AME Church sits off Jedburg Road, just about 20 miles outside of downtown Charleston. Newly unsealed documents in Dylan Roof's federal trial state the now 22-year-old drove towards Branch AME right after the shooting at Mother Emanuel. Oh, it scared me. Very much. Jeanette Alston is a lifelong member of the church. She heard about the news this morning and recalls they didn't have Bible study the night of the shooting. Sign from God, I think it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sign from God. According to court documents, GPS data shows Roof drove towards Branch AME Church June 17th of 2015, slowing down, and then the GPS was deactivated for roughly two to three minutes. Prosecutors say it's consistent with Roof stopping the car. It almost blew my mind. It was very frightening. The documents also reveal this wasn't Roof's first time going to Branch AME. Prosecutors say Roof had driven by the church on February 27th, months before the shooting at Mother Emanuel, quote, in the midst of his ongoing preparation for his offense. Alston says Roof could have been there the same time she was rehearsing for the choir. I'll be out there by myself, and the door is open. The door is not locked, so it could have been me. You know, he could have been out there scouting or whatever, and maybe see a call something out there and come inside the church. Alston says her church is now more aware of new people in attendance and urges others to keep a watchful eye. She also adds this news is likely to be discussed before Bible study tonight. 
In Somerville, Karina Bolster, My 5 News. Prosecutors decided not to present this evidence during Ruth's trial, but they did tell the court about a handwritten list of predominantly black churches in the Low Country and elsewhere that were found on a piece of paper in Ruth's car. He was convicted of 33 different charges in federal court last month in the deadly attack on Emanuel AME. He was sentenced to death by a federal jury. Right now, his state trial has been postponed indefinitely. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 25th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in, share your thoughts, observations. If you have counter racist suggestions, the number 641 seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate that number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code Five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, before we get to some of the folks who dialed in, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, when you visit my blog, uh, look in the top right corner, you'll see the PayPal button. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested eight years uh, of counter-racist programming. Uh, hopefully we have helped folks, victims of racism, get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works. Uh, if you can also support uh, and thanks to the folks who have got things from our wish list at Amazon.com. It's under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, I'll link it uh, for this evening as well. Huge thanks to all the folks who have uh, got lots of books, really filled out my counter-racist literature. Um, I had some things that I was going to get to, but a listener emailed me with uh, a problem concerning workplace racism. And she said that she would not, this is kind of an urgent matter and she wouldn't be able to participate uh, this coming Thursday. Workplace racism is every Thursday. So I'm going to address her uh, concerns. And uh, then that way people can offer feedback as we go uh, pertaining to this issue. Uh, and, you know, certainly the sound clips or anything else that you want to touch on. All right. So this is a black female. She says, uh, a suspected white supremacist female and former co-worker locked an elementary school principal in their office and is now filing an appeal. She told several local people, including local elected officials, community leaders and lawyers, that she's in trouble, but probably didn't mention that she's at fault. They are all on her side without knowing all the details. I suspect that she committed this crime because the principal is a black female this white female is married to a non-white Latino male, cowbell. So whenever she says or does something racist, she will hide behind him. She asked me to be a character witness. Thoughts. 
was a serious question. I'll address that now before I proceed. Um, this is one of those, it would really be up to you. Like any, any sort of serious matter like this where you're putting your time and energy, this is going to be public uh, in terms of you have to go, you know, I would think of this, you're talking to the whole world. I would think that, the, you know, if there's going to be a trial transcript uh, that the whole world is going to hear what you have to say with your uh, name, might have video footage, who knows? Uh, so that all is something serious to consider if you want to be involved at all. I can certainly understand the logic of folks who would say, hey, this, I, I don't want anything to do with this at all. No, thank you. Uh, I could also see people who take the position that, hey, uh, it could be an opportunity to practice counter-racism. Uh, that's what you get this information for. I remember uh, that's what Mr. Edward Williams, someone asked me about the counter-racism site, but I remember he said that to me some years ago, that you don't just get counter-racism, uh, counter-racist logic and information uh, just to sit around and squabble and argue with other victims of racism. You get that information to apply it. So you could say, hey, this is an opportunity for me to apply my understanding of counter-racism. And I'm going to be a character witness and I'm going to do just what they tell me to do. I'm going to tell the truth. So whatever information that I have about this incident uh, and this particular uh, white female race soldier, I'm just going to speak to that truthfully uh, and tell her that no problem. I'll be a character witness. I'll speak truthfully to, you know, whatever they ask me uh, pertaining to this situation and do just that. And, you know, I think some people might say, well, there could be consequences. White people, racist, they might retaliate and try to make things tough on you. Absolutely. They might do that. I, I, I do think it's important. A significant part of racism, white supremacy is they do those sort of things to black people anyway. So <laughs> that but that certainly is something to consider. Uh, many, many black people have faced increased white terrorism as a result of their counter-racist efforts. So that's certainly something to consider. You just have to make your own judgment about what you're willing to do. Continuing with what she wrote in. A white female responded, either don't do it or be the witness and tell the truth. She'll be really angry, but you can just say you couldn't lie under oath. I responded, I don't care about her being angry. However, I'm concerned that she'll center herself as the victim and I'll be put on trial instead. That's certainly a legitimate concern also. A black friend texted, I got this message from one of my friends. If you testify, she will be exposed. But the only question is, does she have enough pull in the white community to <laughs> harm you for future job opportunities or affect your current income? Weigh your benefits against the risk of her trying to get you back for exposing her. Sounds similar to what I thought. Okay, so she updated. So, um, so this is the abbreviated uh, version of what she, I think, intends to say. I think, from my understanding, I think she is going to be a character witness, and she's just going to testify to the truth. Okay, so she writes in. Uh, I would like to submit public testimony to the character. Ooh. Well, <laughs> that's this is another one of those where the names are in it. But she did say, you know, I could let me make sure that she did say that I could uh, read this. OK, yep. She said you can read this. OK. And that's what I said about trial. This is a trial. It's going to be public anyway. So, OK, the names are in it. All right. So uh, I would like to submit public testimony on the character of Cynthia Gibson Perdomo Perdomo 
whom I've known for eight years. On Tuesday, February 21st, she apologized to me for possibly seeming aloof because she was fighting an appeal. She said, I fucked up. She further stated that she locked a principal in. She said that she was getting everyone to write letters on her behalf as character witnesses. She mentioned the seriousness of the situation and how she stressed out because of it. She asked if I would be a character witness. I neither agreed nor denied because I knew that she wasn't telling the entire story. Again, I think she recruited further solicitation of support through emails and mentioned that everything needed to be in the co-superintendent into the co-superintendent by Thursday the 23rd. I didn't receive any of her emails because I blocked her the previous week. Going back a bit, I'd like to explain the reason behind me banning Cynthia from sending me emails. For several months, she continuously badgered me about going to the women's march that happened in January. On several separate occasions, I said, nope, nah, nah, no, etc. to her questioning if I was going. The seventh time she asked me and I said no, she replied with, come on, it's been over a hundred years since women marched in Washington. I replied, what? That's not true, and I'm not going. She then purposely read aloud, women in Nigeria are going to march in solidarity with us. Her strategic mentioning of the black African country of Nigeria was her racist attempt to show me that since other black women are going to march, so should I. Just prior to the week of the 21st of February, she sent me an email inviting me to huddle up for the march. This was nothing more than her typically passive-aggressive microaggressions that I pretend to ignore but take note of. I fake ignorance or feign laughter so that her guard is lowered and she expresses how she truly feels as opposed to projecting this anti-racist liberal crusader that she publicly pretends to be. As a result of her sending me this unwanted email, I then blocked her email address. I took note of two incidents on the day of February 21st. Prior to Cynthia's confession of guilt, she asked me, what year did the first black Barbie come out? I flatly answered with a, I don't know. She responded with, you're black, of course you know. Her husband's grandson said, that's rude. She delightfully replied, I'm glad you know this. She then looked in my direction and said, I've said some really awfully racist things to you over the years. I replied with a sarcastic, right. Later that night, after she whined about how she was upset that there were consequences for her actions while we were watching television, she and I both said something almost simultaneously, but I was able to say it first. She, she then said, I don't, I don't uh, censor what uh, racists say, so I'm just reading, and she has it in quotes, so I'm just reading <laughs> what she said, so... Uh, racist responded uh bitch i was gonna say that 
I laughed, thinking nothing of it until she followed up with, Oh, it felt really good to call you a bitch. I mockingly replied, I bet it really did. This exchange made me wonder about the race of the principal because for some reason it felt as if she were using my presence as a proxy for someone else. I googled and found out that Principal Teresa Bay is a first-year principal at Hyattsville Elementary School. She is also a black female. I'm certain that she's wanted to and has privately called this particular black female a bitch several times, but to actually have the courage to name-call a black female to her face in a seemingly non-joking manner was something that her cowardice wouldn't allow. Besides, I'm one of only two token black female friends that she claims to have, and I was the one available to name call at that moment. I've come to the conclusion that she only pretends we're friends because she thinks that her repeated sexual harassment will produce results. Sam, the other black female, and I are both heterosexual and have unambiguously rebuffed her advances. Cynthia has lied to me about hooking up with Sam, and she's probably told Sam that she's hooked up with me, in an attempt to somehow persuade either Sam or I to get sexual with her. This won't be the last time she lies about a black female. Processing the information that I obtained from Cynthia's words and actions on the day of February the 21st allowed me to hypothesize the motivation of what could have led to her locking Principal Bay in. A black female told her no, and in spiteful retaliation, she locked the door. For the past few days, I've gone back and forth if I should get involved with this appeals process, but then realized that she only wanted to use a black female against another black female, shielding her from the perceived entitlement that she thinks she has to say and do as she pleases because she doesn't respect, respect black females. I started writing this on Friday, February 24th, after Cynthia, as I've suspected, hatefully put a dirty box on the bed that I sleep in. I believe that her motivation to do this stems from her complaints about a box being in the hallway. I told her that if she wanted the box out of the way, that she can just do it herself by sliding it into the room and out of the hallway. She managed to get a broom which was in the front of this box, just inside the room and against the wall, but somehow this box landed three feet away and on the bed. Through several observations, I wish to show that the disrespect shown to Principal Bay by Cynthia is not an isolated incident, but calculated malice with the intent to cast herself as the victim of another angry black woman. End quotes. A friend of mine, a black female who has only met Cynthia once after meeting her, asked me, why was she hugging us that long and rubbing our backs? She hugged and rubbed on you the longest. I think that she wants you. I've noticed that Cynthia constantly seems to want to invade the personal space of any black female that would allow her to get close. Principal Bay probably experienced an extreme space invasion the day Cynthia locked her in. 
On a few occasions, Cynthia attempted to make fun of the name of a black female friend of mine. I knew that her making fun of my friend's name was a racially motivated act as every time I've overheard her making fun of someone's name, they happen to be black and she attempts to use a voice that she thinks mimics the voice of a black person. She also uses this voice when she refers to someone as a ghetto cow. By her speech pattern, I can, with a high level of confidence, determine the race of whomever she mentions in brief, fleeting, seemingly innocuous conversation. She looks like she hurts children. A friend of mine said this after viewing a picture of Cynthia. I think that I responded with, I wouldn't be surprised. Alexander is her step-grandson. I am not his guardian, so I usually stay out of issues involving him since I'm just grandpa and Mimi's friend. However, I have noticed that he has what can be described as a nasty attitude and smart mouth. He is only mirroring behavior habitually exhibited by Cynthia. This is the nature of Cynthia's character. She will try to deceive, harass, bully, and retaliate against anyone that tells her no and then imply that she is the wronged party. Sometimes she even manages to produce tears. This is the person that the people attesting to her moral fiber have, have never seen. In fact, she has stated that her supporters have no clue about what happened between her and Principal Bay, yet they blindly believe her and enlist others in the Hyattsville community to participate in this letter-writing scheme. I've overheard her telling people that Principal Bay is the one that has a problem with her. She's also hinted at Principal Bay's alleged incompetency as her decision probably had to come down from someone else. It's apparent that Cynthia has the problem with Principal Bay, the married black female authority figure that told her no. I'm willing to answer any questions in relation to Cynthia Gibson Perdomo and her horrible character. Please reject her appeal and not allow her to continue to disrupt the learning process with her misconduct in order to seek attention. Thank you for your time and consideration. Well, <laughs> um, I think she was submitting this for, for commentary and feedback. So I think at least at this point we are at the, she's going to proceed and be a character witness and just tell the truth about her experience with this white woman, Cynthia Perdomo. Uh, so I guess if, if she's seeking feedback for what she has written, her uh, official statement, uh, the only suggestion that I would give, um, whew, wow, <laughs> what a record, the importance of, of taking notes. Uh, it can be so important moving forward when you have documentation, dates, times, what people actually said, written record. It can be huge. The only thing I would say is that <clears throat> uh, at times it reads as though this is like counter racist documentation for like a cow's audience as opposed to just uh, a straight facts, uh, straight facts. This is what happened. And, you know, if you want to give an assessment, um, uh, but just that I think like at one point when you said uh, that she whined like I, and I even stopped myself to say, you know, this is your official testimony. I mean, hey, this is supposed to be subjective. This is supposed to be your your personal assessment of Cynthia uh, Perdomo. So part of me says, hey, 
just give it to them exactly like that because that I mean this is supposed to be your personal assessment here so you can make it very personal very subjective this is your assessment of the situation uh, and then I, I did think you know you could you could uh, alter it just to make it you know seem a bit more um, just reporting things as opposed to consistently giving like saying she whined you could just say well she you know she said this she said this where it's more just reporting the facts but i mean hey this is your personal record i think it might even be best to just leave it the way it is and just do it that way that's this is your assessment of the situation and 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 allow that to be on the on the record uh folks have commentary pertaining to this situation you can feel free to share certainly the audio clips or anything else that took place over the last seven days the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate make sure i get in no metaphors for the compensatory call-in i know frequently in our struggles to articulate our views on racism white supremacy we will employ analogies metaphors comparisons to express our ideas a lot of times it does not add clarity uh, racist they do this a lot of times to generate confusion a lot of times victims of racism uh, we just <clears throat> we're still learning uh, but a lot of times we end up comparing things and making metaphors uh, that are not accurate they're comparing things that are not equivalent uh, and just make it very difficult to get truthful accurate understanding if we could just be direct specific make it simple with what we mean that would be greatly appreciated i will prompt about the metaphors uh with that and if you could watch your background noise we would also appreciate that as well use your mute button if you know you're in a noisy area with that the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open oh and i'm going to make sure i get in uh we're going to have a cap on get out so i think i can do a max of three comments on that uh because i am not like excited <laughs> about that film and i'm not really interested in hearing you know a whole lot uh of earth-shattering commentary about uh get out so i can do max three comments on get out first few folks that dialed in with a hand up line should be open can i be heard yes sir greetings everyone uh i'll just start off uh and this happens to be a movie also. Uh, it's called United Kingdom. Uh, just the commercial alone uh, is uh, not there, not constructive at all. Just commercial alone that's advertising the, 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 the movie. Uh, once again, it's an effort to uh, uh, confuse non-white black people into thinking that all we have to do is have sex with white people and or become emotionally attached to them and the problem will improve and or the problem of racism would, would be removed or, uh, or ahead in a constructive direction. Uh, just nonsense, utter nonsense. Uh, number two, uh, I also heard, heard the story of heard the uh the person uh talking about her research i believe it was her research on uh 
on the uh, quote unquote uh, non-white black person who's a vic- who was a victim of racism, white supremacy, uh, what, about 150, 150, 200 years ago, uh, misjudged. Uh, I've heard that on, on the, uh, I think the satellite radio is what it's called. Uh, I would say Sally Hemings, Miss Judge, and millions of other non-white black people who are no longer uh, alive. They will not rest in peace until we have found an answer to and destroyed the global system of racist white supremacy and replaced it with a system of justice. In turn, they would not uh, be able to rest in peace. Uh, the movie Quad, uh, I'll just say that based on what I heard, the uh, I believe he was uh, the president of uh, Hampton University. Uh, I basically agree with just about everything I heard him say. Uh, I myself have, have uh, did uh, research observing uh, people who would have uh, the subject matter of historical black colleges on television in a fictional way. And uh, it, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem like anything academically goes on at these places, you know, at all. It's just, just uh, partying, getting drunk, uh, fighting amongst one, one another. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned uh, the, the, uh, your favorite subject, uh, people activity of eight, uh, having sex with one another uh, uh, in all different type of strange ways, you know, and nothing academically hardly goes on at these places. Uh, it's just a disgrace. Uh, last but not least, uh, on a friend of mine's uh, 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 Facebook, he uh, had uh, some additional uh, understanding that uh, quote unquote young white races are no different than the older ones. Uh, this I'll just read right quickly a uh, letter that was written by a, uh, I guess this white female was young enough to uh, have sex with Dylan Roof and Dylan Roof not to uh, get in trouble for having sex with her uh, because of the age of being, uh, you know, close together and also young. But nevertheless, uh, it states here, uh, uh, let me get to it right quick. Uh, let me, uh, go to the beginning of it. Uh, oh, the first thing she says in her essay is I'm not, it's supposed to be a black history uh, uh, essay report. Anywhere, her essay went like this. I'm not fully racist, but I hate almost every black person. They think they run everything, but in reality are an embarrassment to this country. The student goes on to justify slavery based on misconceptions about the Bible. Think about it, though, she writes. None of the apostles were, were different ethics. They were all white. There was no black nor Hispanic mentioned really back when Jesus' time was. All the stories we hear in the Bible are about, like, mainly white people. So since God knows everything that is going to happen, then he would have done something about that. The student explains that she cannot support Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message about equality because black people make her petrified to leave my house. But we are supposed to give them a month, right? The essay continues. When they cannot even wear pants that fit them, 
when they shoot cops for protecting people, sad to say this, but maybe things would be better if they would have stayed slaves, the student concludes. I should have, I should not have to be scared for my life when I see them in my sight. Uh, this is the uh, thoughts of a, uh, of a white person uh, who is primarily recent to the earth. Uh, so uh, that's basically what I have to report and thank you everybody for listening. May I be heard? Uh, heard both of you. Uh, we'll get the caller 6102. Hello to everyone on the call. Um, I wanted to touch on the first thing was the um, movie Get Out, which I was debating to go and see. And now after hearing the audio clip and finding out that the black director is married to a white woman, I'm sure it's going to reflect in the movie. And it doesn't sound like it's probably going to be constructive. So. That was that. Um, the other clip I wanted to touch on was about owner judge. It was funny because earlier this month, I came across an article about her in the New York Times. And it spoke about a black, she's a light-skinned woman, looks like, a non-white black author who is a professor at University of Delaware, and she's the head of the Black American Studies in History, and she wrote a book on her, a nonfiction book, is entitled Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Owner Judge. It was the the second time I heard of her. I'm sorry? That was the person in the interview. Yeah. Um, oh, that was her speaking. Oh, okay. Um, it was an interesting um, article, and I'm probably going to purchase this book. What I found interesting is that she was, um, well, I did find out that she was enslaved. Her mother was enslaved, and the father was a white indentured servant. And um, as a child, she was brought into becoming Martha Washington's personal maid. Also, I um, thought was interesting is that when he, um, George Washington, before his death, well, in his will, he freed all of his 123 of his slaves and, of course, excluded owner judge, which was one of 153 slaves held by his wife, Martha. Um, also, I thought was um, interesting that when George Washington made the move to Philadelphia, that um, in Pennsylvania, the law required enslaved people to be set free after six months of res- residency in the state. And what he did to get around that was to every six months, he sent the slaves back down south just as it was just before the time was going to expire. Um, also, um, uh, I guess this is her quote in the article, um, Dunbar, the author, stated that when it was safe, he emancipated his slaves, she said, he dealt with it after his death, 
And you know what? That's what all the founders did with slavery. They kicked the can down the road. So again, I thought that was um, that was the first time. I the second time I've heard of Owner Judge was on your um, show tonight. So it was interesting, and um, I just wanted to share that. Thanks. For sure. Uh, the female caller at three six three seven. Did you have commentary as well? Yes, sir. Hello, everyone. Um, I wanted to start off with Miss Judd also um, that she was being hunted down. Um, all of her life happened to look over her shoulder and the dangerous white woman that um, was actually the owner of the most slaves. I know it probably doesn't matter, but I mean, everybody owns slaves, all the, all the racist white people, but the white woman just um, horribly dangerous, like it's always said on cows. And that is with her looking over her shoulder and then, then going into the constant shifting of non-whites um, being where where we are allowed to live. Um, it goes on in America, like you might have to move um, every three, five years. Um, and worldwide it goes on. They are always shifting um, people off of the continent. They're having to leave because of bad conditions that racist white supremacists have set up for them. And so um, they realize that we have to constantly be on the move because if racist, they, they can't let us settle and because we'll really start thinking about what's going on. Because right now we are not thinking, the vast majority of us are not. And Sally, I want to talk about Sally Hemmings. Miss Sally Hemmings, um, you know, her room was turned into the toilets. I wanted to point that out. And now they're going to turn it into somewhere where people can go and see. But it was turned into toilets. Um, and with the Peel, Mr. Peel, um, with his movie and everything, you know, I looked up his, he said he was having a child, and then I researched who he was having a child with, and so I'm going to leave that there. Um, when the student was saying about the student from Ole Miss and um, how he was helping uh, people um, learn, I guess he was like a tutor to young people, I thought that was great. And then he said the the thing that a lot of confused victims that we will say, you know, what year is it when something happens, like you'll go to school or you'll go to church tomorrow and the church might get blown up and somebody will say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this happened in 2017. And we don't have the connection that these are the same people from Europe that they released out of the jail. These are basically the same people. Nothing changed on that. And so... I just hope we can make that connection pretty soon. And I, I um, sent us an article about cannibals, cannibals being normal. And I said that would make sense because it would, that something like that would be normal to racist white supremacists, like actually sinking your teeth into another human being's flesh. That would be normal. So I had to link that um, to Gus. Um, and that made me also think of the passage from the Ben Tillman book about scratching the surface 
and you will find some type of beast, I think we need to not be falling for the surface of white people and realizing that that's, that's a beast right there. Um, a 16-year-old child ran down the street by a car. That reminded me of Mr. Williams' little friend getting ran over and nothing was done about it. So, you know, same people, same thing. Um, was that woman, that was that person a heroin addict? She went to drug court. Was she one of these people that falls asleep behind the car? Or was she a, you know, alcoholic bum just driving reckless? Um, they try to cover it up. I think that should be highlighted. Let's burn the car. Disgusting. And the white terrorist that was ex- activated going in and killing those um, non-white Indians, um, you know, that's normal behavior um, for the racist white supremacist. And that, those are all the notes that I had. Thank you for, oh, I want to, um, everybody should listen to Reverend Erica. I think that's her name. She was on the cows recently. That's a good study in European psychology. And thank you for letting me speak. I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, how's it going, everyone? I'm going to keep it uh, short and sweet, uh, but before I start, that's the best news segment that I've heard on any radio station in a very long time, very informative. Um, first, uh, I won't even mention the movie's name, but I don't know about you guys, but I just don't want to hear anything about black directors um, who are married to white women who are either gay, because that seems that's the only way uh, that they can come up uh, in the Hollywood game. You know, you either have to marry a white woman or be associated uh, with that lifestyle somehow, um, or or you're feminine. And I'm talking about black male directors. Uh, secondly, ODU. I used to attend ODU quite some time ago. Um, and uh, it's a very uninviting campus. Uh, before I went to ODU, I went to HU. So it was a big difference. HU was all black college. Um, ODU was, that's the first place I encountered uh, white supremacy, uh, very out in the open. Um, I don't see how they didn't track this young girl down yet. Uh, any YouTube upload that you make um, is tracked by an IP address. So if one of us did something like that, believe you me, they would track us down instantly. Now all of a sudden they can't find this little white girl. doesn't make any sense. Uh, and lastly, uh, the Camden hit and run. Now, this lady's license was suspended 30 times. Um, she ran from the scene and gets tried in drug court. Um, I can tell you now, uh, if we tried that, you can forget about it. Uh, a family member of mine tried that after selling drugs. He was also using as well. Um, he tried to uh, cop that same plea. The judge told him emphatically no. Uh, now he's doing time in jail. Um, so this, these are the things that they get away with in this white supremacist world, and uh, somehow, some way, uh, we all have to band together to stop this. Uh, that's all I have. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to the calls and the listeners. Um, yeah, I really uh, like today's clips. They were really, really profound. Um, and insightful as always, but today was just really, this week was really, uh, was something. So I'm pretty sure you have a quite a bit of surplus in regards to that. 
um, I was funny. Uh, I think it was a firefighter in Florida that brought up the uh, racist white female child uh, talking about Jesus and all this crazy stuff about the biblical characters being white. I found that hilarious. Um, the oldest known image of Jesus is a crystal black male with an Afro and his disciples around him all have Afros. I actually got it from a local Rashidi when I went with him to Egypt in 2007. And um, it's the oldest known image of him and he's crystal black. And um, I find it interesting too, because she really doesn't know her history. The oldest Christian churches, oldest Christian church is um, the Egyptian Coptic church. And the second oldest is the Ethiopian Orthodox church. And Ethiopia, of course, is the oldest Christian country. So she's just out of her mind, but, and I don't really care about Christianity in general. I'm not a Christian, but I just figured those facts would be good for, um, just to put out there. Um, To speak on the clip about, uh, on the judge, I found that to be profound. You you have talked about her um, previously, like the female caller said earlier, and um, I just always think that that clip revealed the white female's dedication to racism, white supremacy, um, with the fact that she never freed her slaves, um, and she lived longer than George Washington did. And it, it's just everything about her just shows that she was the epicenter of the racist practice in that family. Um, not saying that George Washington was any less racist. He was a rapist and racist. So, um, and she probably was a rapist too, um, just reading The Delectable Negro. But her dedication to, to racism and white supremacy was extremely evident there. And then also just the practice, again, thinking of The Delectable Negro, um, just incestuous rape. Um, essentially, they're they're like half sisters, and she basically owned her half sister. Like that, I mean, white people are just disgusting, but they've done all kinds of things to their own. So it doesn't surprise me what they would do to someone um, that's a quote unquote family member that was black. In the clip you did play with Jordan Peele, he said something I found very telling, which makes sense because he is in a tragic arrangement and now sadly about to bring a confused victim into the world with this, uh, this uh, beast that he's married to. But he said that racism is a human trait and we all have to deal with our own racism. Actually, that's incorrect. Racism is solely a white trait that they have now infected everyone else with. And um, it's funny, I've been reading the Iceman Inheritance. This is like my third reading of that book. And I had just passed the page in the early part of the text where Michael Bradley emphatically states that racism is solely a white trait and that they propagated it around the world. So I found that interesting. And um, a, a young black male who listens to this show actually implored me to see Get Out because he saw it and he thought it was just um, very telling about the system of white supremacy. Um, I don't go to the movies. I don't pay people to show me my abuse on film. So I will not be going to see it. But if I can, you know, find a link to it for free or something like that online, I'll watch it or wait till it comes out, you know, later on and get it for free some other by some means. But um, yeah, I won't be spending my money on that. And um, essentially, I just think it's going to be more confusion and just violence against black people as usual. I'm not putting myself through that nonsense. And the clip about the 16 year old black male that was killed by that that creature in um, Camden, New Jersey. Um, I've gone to Camden. And Camden, in certain areas, especially the more um, city-looking city portion rather than the suburbs, is one of the most depressing places I've ever been to. Um, it's just a dis- dismal, and it reminds me of like the like um, almost like like the, almost like the South Bronx from the from the 60s after they burnt it down. 
and it's just really bad. And it makes sense to me that someone, a, a white female of her type, would would run over run over a black male, kill him, and then uh, and and basically get away with it in that area simply because our lives are worth so little there, and there's so much violence. Um, it's one of the most violent places in the country, and it's just really um just disgusting. And I feel for his mother just to hear her pain in the um in the clip. And it just brings, again, the fact that when we walk into these justice systems, this court system, we're walking in at a disadvantage because they actually said that she was begging them for justice. And and I just thought, like, how do you beg your enemy for justice? You know, how do you walk into an arena where you have to beg your enemy to help you seek justice for your enemy killing your child? And it's like everything that we do, we walk in at a, you know, racist, white supremacist disadvantage where nothing tends to ever go in our favor um, even when we've been wronged. And there's just a lot that needs to be done to change the system so things like that don't have to happen. And God forbid when one of them do hurt or kill us that we have some recourse. Um, so we have to do something. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele, and I am here in uh, Orange County tonight. And I just wanted to report on, um, again, the eighth area of activity. Uh, there's just been a lot, of, um, a lot of developments in the last week alone. Um, oh, this the, is, uh, Area what? 8 is, is not on the compensatory call-in. People get out of control with that one. Oh, my apologies. Um, can I just say, I, I, it wasn't, um, I guess, uh, the eighth area of activity. Uh, I guess I didn't want to discuss it in a way that um, it's supposed to be, um, I don't know, arousing or any sort of uh, attention-making. I just wanted to make mention that there's an effort amongst white supremacists to normalize uh, pedophilia, um, and I think that in the last week that effort has... Uh, made a significant, um, I guess, progress. I think that uh, because of the, uh, because of the uh, events that have taken place this week, a number of suspected white supremacists are uh, coming out and revealing that they have sympathetic views towards people who have, um, I guess, uh, attraction towards um, people who are not of uh, consenting uh, age um, to engage in the eighth area. And I just wanted to say that um, there is a concept that I believe that they are going to um, begin to try to normalize or mainstream, which is um, pedophobic. Uh, honestly, they are trying to drum up a lot of sympathy for um, suspected white supremacists who have uh, engaged in, who have uh, been victimized by pedophilia and uh, thereby uh, go on to practice it themselves. So beware of this effort to normalize this, um, this concept and to spread the idea that uh, pedophilia is just an orientation or uh, it's just some sort of um, uh, I guess, trait that can't be avoided that people are essentially born with. And uh, I don't know. That's just something that I've noticed that was that happened this week and that many people have not taken uh, time to 
uh, I guess, counteract. I just see that there's one side of this uh, uh, discussion being uh, uh, presented in the mainstream media even, and that is the sympathetic view that, yes, you can have sympathy for those people who practice pedophilia or who promote pedophilia. And that's just something that I've noticed, and that's in the eighth area, and I didn't want to um, derail the conversation um, with that. But I will also make mention that uh, to victims of racism, uh, as somebody who uh, frequents um, um, establishments after um, normal business hours, uh, for uh, primarily for business and primarily for the purposes of uh, practicing comedy, I just want to say that uh, the nightlife in every American city uh, is, uh, has become tremendously more dangerous uh, ever since uh, about a month ago, since the inauguration of Donald Trump. I think that it's uh, no secret amongst uh, listeners of this program that uh, suspected racists and alcohol do not mix. And in this current uh, environment of um, heightened um, and increased violent expressions of white supremacy, they are be, have begun to um, kill non-white people who are at these bars for uh, no reason other than to, I suspect, uh, perform blood sacrifices of non-white people. So I just want to say that it should be in, uh, I, I suggest that, it sh uh, that victims of racism should adopt the code that um, to stay away from after hours gatherings at night, especially those that include the consumption of alcohol because uh, your safety and your, your life is uh, at risk. Just tonight, there was an incident that took place in Baton Rouge uh, during a, uh, I guess, a, um, a pre-Mardi Gras celebration whereby dozens of uh, attendees were struck by a uh, pickup truck driven by someone who uh, police have indicated is being charged with a DUI. And they're not releasing the name of or the image of the person that they are uh, that they have in custody connected to this incident i suspect uh that the person who is uh, responsible for this incident uh, uh taking place is a suspected white supremacist just because of the behavior of the police associated with uh this activity and um also uh, lastly I'll say that I've had an incident that in my own life where uh, by I was uh, threatened um, with my life and I reviewed the laws of the state um, that I'm in in California and I reviewed the laws in the state where the issue where the threat was issued um, in Illinois and in both jurisdictions uh, the threat that was issued to me um, met the criteria of uh, uh, of a, a criminal act and the police officers that uh, responded to my call to authorities, uh, they indicated to me that it did not. And um, their reasoning ran counter to the law as written. And I just make mention to this because I want victims of racism to understand that while it is important to 
to document every single act of racism that happens uh, or any sort of criminal activity that happens against you, you may not be assisted by police officers in rectifying the situation. However, you can go to private means to do this. And uh, getting that on record is very, very important. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I will mute my line at this point. Appreciate that. that. Yes, ma'am, Emmy. I do apologize. I, I always hate when I cut you off when you're about, were you about to say something, guys? Uh, no, ma'am. Okay. Um, thank you for the clips. Um, I enjoyed as much as I can enjoy. I feel slightly more caught up, so I do appreciate that. I wanted to talk about a few things. I'm on the plantation, so I'm going to have to try to talk uh, a little quickly. So um, one of the things about the psychology when they're, the the guy, the gentleman, not the gentleman, the man, the male, black male victim of racism was is up for the death penalty, and they presented a psychologist who said that uh, black people are predisposed to being violent or they're going to be more violent if he, he's going to commit another violent act if you let him out. One of the things that they've been doing for a very long time is gathering or trying to gather genetic evidence to develop a correlation between race and predispositions towards aggression or violence or anything like that. And so um, not that we have to be careful because I'm not really sure what at this point we can do um, unless we're providing the same types of correlations between white genetics and their high levels of aggression and violence as evidenced in historical psychology um, and even now. But um, those things are underway. So what I feel like I witnessed in this clip was a speculative opinion and stereotype, racist stereotype. But what will what psychology is definitely making um, strident steps to solidifying as a science and a genetic reality for black people. And then the conversation, once that becomes indoctrinated in people's minds, we're already dehumanized. And once it becomes like, look, this is just what black people are. They're this, they're that, they're this, they're that. Um, those, the conversations that were being had in private will be had in public. What are we going to do about these black people? What are we going to do about them? Because, look, we can't expend the resources, which is what we heard in Haiti. We're tired of trying to do this and that. It's costing us money. We want to save our money and do our things for our white collective goals and agendas. Um, so pretty much internment camps, concentration camps, or just kill them all, like whatever the final steps will be, I think science is going to be backing that quite soon. Um, at first, I wasn't sure about what, like when the introduction for the clip about the dean or the president of Hampton, I was like, please do not let this be um, just black people, black self-hate. Um, but I have tremendous respect for how he handled that conversation. I thought he was um, very calm, very non-judgmental, and like it wasn't black hate. It was, well, look, it was very objective. And I appreciated the way that he did that because there's no reason that um, you cannot show both. He would be like, that is true. You know, that is true. But at the same time, and any, and any person who is slightly well informed understands that the media, that you don't even have to really even be informed, just be up observing things, that the media influences behavior. Media influences perceptions and perspectives. So if we have 
a television show or something that is only one-sided, it's causing a lot of issues for how people are going to view black universities, HBCUs, people, and in you know further ramifications of those who have graduated from HBCUs. That must mean their education is invalid, and and so forth. Moving on, um, but I just black self-respect. I really I I seek for people who are able to do that, um, to be calm, articulate, to be objective, scientific, logical, mathematical, and how we address issues around racism, white supremacy. And I think he did a really good job. I'm uh, out here in Virginia, and uh, there are a lot of, there's always a lot of clips about Virginia. And I'm not from Virginia, but I've been here long enough that, you know, Virginia is kind of home for me. Um, and so I think one of the things that I'm going to do, and I'll just share it with you all, is not that I, I'm not always trying to evolve how I carry myself, but I'm in very hostile territory in Virginia. And in the moves that I'm choosing to make on how best to help black people in the future with the time that I have, um, I'm going to just be on, um, be very vigilant about all that I am doing every time I'm outside of my house in Virginia. And instead of like, I cannot at this point can no longer consider black people in other parts of the world to be even less disenfranchised than black people in the state of Virginia. Because if black Virginians, Virginians, or excuse me, white Virginians are really that racist, that means that the black people here are not receiving proper health care. The black people here are not receiving proper education. The black people here are suffering immensely, especially once they pass like Virginia also has on 95 a very, very large Confederate flag, which is, has, there's a whole lot to say about that. But um, that separates Northern Virginia from the rest of Virginia. And everyone knows, like, Northern Virginia has pretty much just been conceded to D.C., so that's, you know, what it is. But um, it just, it, for some reason, these set of clips kind of solidified how I'm going to be now that, you know, I'm out here in Virginia. Another thing, I'm always thinking about literacy, also math. Um, literacy, and I realized this in the set of clips, that literacy is not just being able to read. So when they prevented us from reading, made it illegal for us to read, not only could we not read, we were unable to write. For some reason, I didn't put the two together like immediately. Because we were unable to write, we were unable to leave a very detailed, accurate, itemized, enumerated list of everything they did to us. So now it's always like we're just picking pieces together and putting it all together and trying to like piecemeal it when, and I didn't, it's terrible. Um, when I heard about, when I, hearing about the child that was run over, for some reason, all I could hear was United Independent. Um, I really don't know how I stand on counter violence and all that. I will say that. Um, but, you know, these are those situations like it, you just, someone killed your child, what would you do? And then I know Mr. Lee Fuller Jr. says then you would take your own life and the whole thing. Like, white people know that they can do whatever they want. There's, there is no justice because white people know they can do whatever they want. And begging for justice is never going to get us justice. So I think we're at an impasse. Um, I appreciated the Mississippi segment, but primarily because it gave me that quote. I never put it together. I know I'm black. But it's only recently that I'm realizing that my being black, being a so-called Negro and nigger, means that I'm not human. So in history, when I viewed this, I was like, uh, you know, I'm a man, I'm a woman, all this kind of stuff. But, like, I don't know. I'm human. Have I talked to my five minutes? If so, I, if there's time later, I will. But um, thank you. I appreciate it. Mm.
for sure. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, folks we have not heard from, have uh, commentary that they wanted to share. Can I be heard? Oh, the let's get the female caller first. Hi, Gus. I haven't called in quite a while. Um, I'm calling from Ohio. And um, the reason why I would prompt me to call was as I was listening um, to the show over the Internet, uh, I was reminded of one of the consequences of this election, which is the Internet. And uh, I don't know if your listeners are aware that uh, Trump has put in this guy named Ajit Pai, who does not believe in net neutrality. And, you know, we've had this fight for about 10 years for the Internet to remain free and neutral. Well, about two years ago, it came up again. The subject came up again. And it looked like, you know, Obama was going to, you know, do away with net neutrality. But um, the FCC was hit with so many complaints. It was something like 4 million complaints until um, they backed off and Obama basically said that the Internet was a utility. Um, But now with this guy. He doesn't believe in net neutrality. So if the internet is no longer neutral, and these big telecoms are behind, are pushing this, because they will profit even more. Now, right now, the internet, we have in America one of the worst, the worst service of all of the industrialized nations. Um, Our service here is low, and it costs more money. But that isn't even enough. They want to come in, these big telecoms. If they take over the Internet, what they will do is set up gates, and um, and the, the content that they produce, you will be able to get to easy. Websites and so forth that they don't like, they can slow down the traffic and ultimately destroy your website. Uh, They could put in, like, there will be a fee to use YouTube or a fee to go here. It will essentially turn into cable TV, and they ruin cable TV. You pay a lot of money, and you get really bad service. And you pay more money for premium service, and even that isn't any good. Well, they want to do that to the Internet. So you want to keep I, – I just called in to say to keep um, – to stay alert about what this guy is doing. There is a website called freepress.net, freepress.net, and they will um, – they, they're staying on top of it. They've been on it for about 10 years. And so you can give them your email address, and they will send you – uh, alerts whenever Pi uh, is getting ready to do something. And he, he did something Friday. I haven't read what he did, but I just thought I'd call in, you know, to let the cows know that the Internet is in danger uh, and uh, it's the last bastion of free speech. And uh, we already have 
you know, six corporations that own, you know, everything that 300 million people see, hear, and read. And the Internet is just a little bit of what we have left, and we're about to lose that. So, and if I could just say one more thing, and I, I, I know I don't want to go over the five minutes, but uh, someone called in, and it's, it's been a couple in the last couple of weeks and talked about Beyonce. I, I want to recommend a book called Rhythm in Business by Norman Kelly. And it's about how once you read this book and you see how the music industry was solely built with black music and how black artists were exploited. And I mean exploited uh, to the point where, it, I mean, it will literally make you weep. Um, you know, back when they had the race records, like Paramount Records built their whole business off of race records. Nine out of ten of the recording artists, black artists, never got a dime. And this is go This has went on throughout, you know, the music industry. So I would suggest that you know people get that book, and then they will they will understand what's going on with the Grammys and everything. Uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks, guys. Other folks that we have not heard from at all have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Um, good evening to all the callers. Thomas and York. Um, yeah, that book sounds very good. I'm going to check that out for sure. Um, I had a few comments on the clips. Um, I wasn't, wasn't able to hear all of them because... I was en route to the plantation where I am now, but um, I just wanted to say um, what I was able to catch. Um, that clip about Sally Hemmings, um, I don't know if anyone spoke about it because I wasn't able you know, to hear, but um, you know, when he asked the fact about the fact that she was a slave and he was her master, the lady giving the interview deflected by saying, um, well, there's so much we don't know. And then she went on talking about uh, that they would have just to his wife and all these other things deflected from the point, the fact that he was the master and she was a slave, so therefore she had no will or, or rights in that relationship um, or, or in that um, rape relationship, I should say. Um, and then they spent it. $35 million to rebuild slave quarters and other to, to show things that slaves would have done. Um, you know, and to me, that's just, you know, it's just totally terrible, you know, and it's a form that white people do use to do history revisionism, you know, because I'm sure they're not going to show the actual, the actual way that things were. They're going to depict it very, very much like um, Candy's plantation. Um, as opposed to, to, to something that was real. Um, the clip about Haiti, um, uh, yeah, that I feel really bad for the, the Haitian people. It seems like um, all the deals and things needed to be done that white people needed to do, and they're ready to, to skip ship. Or, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. They're ready to leave. And um, they're trying to figure out, um, you know, how best to leave and keep their things secure, um, th their interests secure, um, but keep Haiti, you know, the poorest country in the world. And um, I just really feel bad for the Haitian people because all the help they got after the earthquake, 
they have nothing to show for it. Um, it, it just enriching a lot of the, the white people who went there. And a lot of good resources on that is um, if you study the Clinton Foundation's um, role in Haiti, a lot of those business people who profited and things will pop up. Um, the other day I was home and I was getting dressed and ready to go to work and my wife was into this television show so I started watching and um, it was the show that they were talking about I don't know the name of it, but it was depicting at HBCU, and um, it was um, on BET. And I, I must say, I was totally appalled watching the show. I just felt like, oh uh, man, you know, this is they're just trashing um, the historically black colleges. Um, they're not bringing. I mean, as much work as um, you know, say the name, but Bill Clinton, um, Bill Cosby. Um, did um, creating Hillman and, and depicting on um, these HS, um, you know, historically black colleges as being beacons of, of institutions of higher learning and places that black people should be proud to go to. Um, this show is totally depicting them um, completely like um, just a party culture, um, a lot of scandal and, and backstabbing, and I mean, it's just terrible. And um, I'm totally appalled to that show as well. And um, the last thing I wanted to say, well, I'll just keep it at that um, and, and um, mute my line so I can get back to sleeping on the plantation. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I guess um, hi to all the callers. Um, I was a little hesitant about um, calling and mainly because I'm learning so much. I actually went to Hampton University, and so I had to do my research about what the previous caller was calling about. Um, and so that was um, very interesting to research. But I, I was really inspired to call because I um, just saw the movie Get Out, and I didn't hear the first half of, of the show. I, I just kind of got the chance to call in, and I, I thought that the movie was incredible. I, I thought it was I just couldn't believe my eyes when I was watching it. So I wasn't sure if you spoke about that um, at all. There's a lot of um, just fascinating things I, I even heard in the movie theater. And so I was just curious about um, whether or not that was discussed. Uh, some people have mentioned it. We played a sound clip on it. Uh, I have a cap on the number of folks that are speaking on it. So you'll be the last one. I'm sorry. I said I have a cap on the number of uh, comments that we're going to have on it so that we don't get bogged down and just talking about a movie or a TV program. Uh, that's the case every week. So you'll be the last person uh, speaking on the film. So you should make sure, no pressure, but make sure you uh, give us some really insightful commentary about what you saw. Well, more, I just encourage everyone to see it, but I, I just, I mean, it, it was it was very um, very interesting. I, I've never seen a movie like that, and I, I felt like it was very bold. And for the person I've researched that Jordan Pill wrote it and directed it, I thought that that was was really odd. But um, I mean, that's that's all I had to say. I just have to listen um, to the full show to see um, what was um, discussed. Did you think it uh, presented? Racism, white supremacy, accurately. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. 
any evidence? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, that's part of uh, what was so shocking. I, I can't even, I'm having a hard time articulating my, my words, but I can't even, just just the, the deception part of it, um, of that interracial relationship, that, that whole deception is just, uh, it's very, it's, it's very hard to watch and very, very interesting. There, how they, you know, treated the protagonist throughout the entire movie. It's just, it's a lot to process. I'm still processing it just because, you know, I just saw it less than an hour ago. So, um, yeah. Would you, anything stand out in the film where you would say, oh, okay, the person, Jordan Peele, victim of racism, uh, that he's in a tragic arrangement with a white woman, anything stick out in the film, you would say, oh, okay, yeah, I think one of the people primarily involved with this is in a tragic arrangement? Well, that was what was so shocking, because I knew I, I, I knew either a really racist white person had to write it, or a very, very informed white person had to write it, or it had to have been a black person, someone who's intimately involved in, in what it's like to be in an interracial relationship. There are so many motifs in that that you would not know unless you are in that type of tragic arrangement. So when I, I mean, I, the first thing I did as soon as I left the movie theater was Google who wrote this, who wrote this, who directed it, and and, and I, once I found out who it was, and then I, I you know, home now and I'm Googling Jordan Pill and I see that he is in an interracial marriage. It completely makes sense. Completely makes sense. Um, a scene that stands out, uh, the entire storyline. Um, but I'm trying to think here, Gus, and I do feel a little bit of pressure, um, and a little bit on the spot, but, um, just when there's a scene where, uh, I'm not sure if you're, if you know the entire storyline, but there's a scene where, um, you know, the, the boyfriend gets to the house and um, he's been lied to basically. Um, he's, he's up for auction um, for his body parts and they don't tell him that. And so um, the parents of the girlfriend um, host this huge party in which um, he's not aware, but the, the entire like white people who are invited to this party are, you know, they're, they're fraternizing, they're, you know, just, they're talking to him, they're assessing him, they're asking him to turn around and, you know, looking at his body and complimenting him. And, and so he's just in the dark the whole time. And there's a, there's a scene where he just goes upstairs to kind of look at his cell phone. The entire party downstairs is silent and, until he comes back downstairs. So, so they're, you know, they're just playing this role even though he's he's the you know he's the main actor he's he's the one he's the reason why they're whole, they're they're there basically and, and the moment he leaves they're all kind of concerned to see what he's doing you know and then when he comes back down it's, it's business as usual that scene really stood out to me um, but there's just so, I mean that movie is jam packed with like racial um, just just truth you know he 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 jam packed that movie from beginning to end with a lot so. Um, yeah, I'd highly recommend that. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I'm sure other folks will have commentary, but that will be our last commentary on Get Out for the Day. I'm glad uh, we actually got someone who saw the movie to give a little bit more uh, insight. Someone who uh, <laughs> can relate, I guess, from the tragic arrangement uh, aspect. Uh other folks that we have not heard from have commentary that they want to make sure they get in. Anyone we have not heard from? Have you heard? Yes, sir. 
Thank you very much, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, if Gus, if uh, if you will allow me, like I, just the the title of the movie, I just want to mention that. Like I've heard that that phrase and that slogan used in a couple of stories. Like even with the, from my understanding, the guy who uh, shot the two non-white males, he said, you know, get out of my country. Like if you know, if I, I think that's what he said, and it, it does seem like that would be written by, you know, uh, someone who classified themselves white. But um, it was it's a, it's a poster of, I think the other movie was called Keanu, and it's, a, you know, a cat or animal or whatever. And I think that's very symbolic how, uh, you know, once again, that we are pretty much being mocked and called animals. But um, I've I seen a news report about that shooting. Uh, that took place at the bar restaurant where um, they said that the person used the term, I guess, Middle Eastern, and they were from uh, the uh, the area of the world known as India. So it just goes to show you just how if you if you uh, have melanin or, you know, you're not white, you just pretty much put into that category. So um, that's pretty much a, um, a repeated used uh pretty much uh, form of uh, racism but just saying, you know, get out of here, you know, go back to, that's another one too, um, go back to uh, Africa or something like that. And uh, the clip where I think that was what it was talking about Seattle and I think it was, they used the term, I think, discrimination and the lady seemed like she was just pretty much making excuses going into that pattern talking about implicit bias and or you know uh black people are just uh doing this and that and not really want to admit what it was and uh the the other clip about where the guy said he didn't want to shake the lady's hand <laughs> you know you know I'm like bravo for that you know he pretty much uh was very serious and very codified uh and for the lady to just say you know, like I did speak out. Like, how come you didn't say anything after all this time? You know, you you, you supported this person who said these things. You know, who put all this uh, vitriol out here, and uh, she was like, "But I I did speak." I I can't remember what he said exactly, but you know, he used the term deception. You know, and uh, that that brings me to how the the lady on the video uh, was talking about, um, you know, black people, uh, you know, screaming uh, white power. But she, you know, noticed that she said that and not the term white privilege. So she went straight to the most effective term. And uh, like I noticed the deception in that as well, you know, hiding behind the mask, you know, um, you know, putting on the Donald Trump mask and the T-shirt, you know, the symbolism is said, uh, uh, my president is white again. So, you know, just once again, uh, I think, in my opinion, I think they know who the person is, and I think they're con- congratulating the person for being like refined, because it's, it's still a sense of refinement to me because she's not revealing, you know, her image still with a lot of uh, deception going on. So I think they still are uh, pretty much rewarding her in one way or another. So um, that's pretty much all I have right now, and uh, thanks for letting me share. Sure. May I speak? 
Yes, sir. Yes, uh, greetings, Gus and the rest of the callers. It appears that, like many of the other callers, I'm on the global plantation attempting to up my coinage. Um, so I, I understand for the other victims. I do want to make a few comments. Uh, the, uh, I'm in the novel right now, Warmth of Other Sons, and um, I believe there was a couple of instances, a couple of reports this evening that brought to mind some of passages from that from that book. Uh, the Mississippi, the spelling of Mississippi, uh, the crooked letter, crooked letter, how children learn how to spell Mississippi. It's, it's, it's amazing how uh, the African mind works. But I thought that, that was interesting that he also shared that he, uh, he learned that way to spell Mississippi or use that, that phonetic. Uh, it also was interesting to me that he very much defended Mississippi and said, this is just as much mine as it is anyone else's or something to that effect that I don't believe those are exact words. And uh, theory, uh, something that I've noticed that black people, uh, non-white people rather, are in the habit of defending, um, believing that we own something, but it's, it's more than apparent we don't own any piece of land to say that it's ours. Um, another instance that reminded me of a passage from the book was the random shooting, I believe it was Ida May in the novel who said that there was a white man who'd come through drunk and would randomly shoot his gun. And having lived over 20 years in Texas, uh, I know how propense white people are to pull their guns out and to let you know that they, they do own bullets. Uh, the shooting that occurred in Olathe was about 20 miles from where I live and um, was, was kind of a, uh, a shock to many people in the community. But White people have always had the opportunity to kill with impunity. Again, highlighting, I believe it was highlighted earlier, um, <laughs> drinking with, with white people is, is literally playing with your life. Uh, this is from someone who, who pre previously spent a lot of time doing that and uh, seeing highlighting how dangerous. The previous call, I believe, touched on the Canadian official. And as, as a part of my counter-racist or attempted counter-racist studies, I've been trying to look for evidence that white people uh, will stop practicing racism. And I believe all of the calls this evening showed from all of the white people, including the ones reporting that they are dedicated to supporting the system of white supremacy, uh, this white official and another official who was um, defending the actions, saying that you know what they do in their personal time or to that effect, giving that, that this uh, non-white male was reporting, really showing how they all defend each other, including the judge who, who gave that light sentence to the woman who struck the child. And, um, and, and as far as not shaking hands, um, I believe it was mentioned on a previous uh, episode of The Cows how someone did not respond well or someone was upset regarding not getting a hug. Uh, I have rejected contact hugs, handshakes with uh, white people and it has always presented and it's always um, brought out the worst in white people when black people refuse physical contact. Um, it, it happened recently in my own home with a woman who, who had come to our home. So I, I have noticed that um, I believe it's gonna be added to my personal code and I recommend that to all non-white people to refuse physical contact at all times with white people for non-white. And I like to make a compensatory request um, I believe there was a call a few weeks ago regarding um, a 
a baby shower and there was a non-white male who spoke about doulas. Um, but I'd like to make a request to anyone who can provide information regarding um, doulas or black midwives, non-white. I'm looking for black midwives or doulas um, in this part of the world, regardless of what state they're in. If anyone has information that they could send to the host, um, as the host would be as gracious to pass that information, I'm looking for a black or non-white midwife um, I'm in the state of, of uh, Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, but I'm, I'll be willing to work with someone around this uh, part of the world, and I'll take my call offline. Thank you. Well, International Center for Traditional Childbearing, they have uh, great resources. Uh, Shafia Monroe is the founder. She uh, recently stepped down. Uh, but they are still in operation, and uh, the website, International Center for Traditional Childbearing, uh, they have great information. They have email, phone number, uh, where I'm sure you could give them a ring and see if they uh, have information uh, for resources in your area or someone else that you could talk to that might be able to assist. But that's definitely one. I think some of our listeners might even have resources in that vein. Other folks, anyone that we have not heard from, anybody that uh, has a hand up that we have not heard from at all. So we got everybody. Spectacular. We have a little less than a half hour left in the program, so if you think you have commentary that you want to share, you should go ahead and get your hand up now before we get to the end of the broadcast. Uh, if folks have uh, ideas, along with guest suggestions, but if you have ideas for things that would be worthy of writing about, let me know. Uh, try and do even more writing. So if you have topics, subjects, uh, things that are happening, any constructive things, that especially would be cool if you have any ideas, constructive, uh, I guess, black people that are doing constructive things, working on projects that are uh, working against racism, doing things to help black people solve problems, that would be grand. But share any topics, themes that you think should uh, are worthy of being reported on. Uh, other folks have commentary that they wanted to share. I know, uh, I think Emmy and Thomas in New York may have had other comments that they wanted to get in. Can I be heard real quick, just before I get pulled away at work? Yes, I'm. Okay. Um, that's what I forgot to comment on was there were two things, but I wanted to comment on the woman who wrote about her workplace racism situation. Hopefully she listens to the archive and gets this far, you know, into it. But um, number one, I think it was black self-respect to, um, and very counter-racist positive to um, choose to be a character witness and speak honestly. That was what I was thinking before I heard everything that you wrote. So I think that's spectacular. The second thing I kind of, I agree with the whole, both sides of what Gus said, like you could totally leave it as is, but I also kind of see a little bit of benefit if you were to make it a little bit more fact-based only because I think they would be more inclined whoever it is that's going to read this to not chalk this up to some kind of emotional thing between you two. Although that might be acceptable, I know very, very little. I know nothing about law and how all of it works. But just in listening to it, I think if it if the facts were emphasized a little bit more, um, I think they would be, like I said, a little bit more inclined to 
use that as a as a source because you know they might have a process of where they read out some and like maybe score it on a rubric to be like are we going to consider this are we not and that kind of thing um but kudos to that and i think it's fantastic that you made that choice and um i there are many many positive things about what you wrote i that would just be the one thing too i would agree with gus but you could go either way um and then if you could let us know what you chose to do and your final submission that would be great i would really like to hear it um, and then the other thing I wanted to do, because sometimes lately, um, I it doesn't matter. <laughs> One thing I wanted to do uh, on the compensatory call is offer up some suggestions that I've been trying out myself that are constructive. Um, and one of them, because I mentioned it at the beginning of the year for so-called New Year's, but was goal setting. And um, I'm learning some techniques in class about shaping behavior, molding behavior, conditioning behavior, rewarding enforcement, and that reinforcement and all that kind of stuff to help a little bit. But um, even when it comes to reading, because I want to be reading more, like I have so much to read that um, even like setting a goal, reading a book a week, and if I do that for this many weeks consecutively, I can do something that I enjoy doing to reward that behavior or reinforce that behavior and just do something like that. I don't know. I know everyone has such a busy lives, but I think um, that there, there are more that, things that we can do, but it requires very strategic goal setting to train ourselves to be able to take on that much more so that we can acquire the information and be kind of speeding this thing up so that we all can be like, yeah, I could totally see how we're going to replace the system of racism, white supremacy in a year or two. And, you know, just be expeditious about it. But that was it. Thank you for letting me speak again. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, good evening, Dan Thomas. Um, yeah, I wanted to say um, the, the guys just spoke on it. I li- did, was able to hear the clip on the gentleman speaking about Mississippi. And um, I kind of felt the same way when he was um, had so much pride and pr- proudness and um, talking about Mississippi. And I felt like, um, you know, like I, I, I try my hardest never to, to talk good about the United States. So, so it, it was just like made me cringe um, because it, the history of Mississippi alone is just atrocious. It's like, you know, it's like me trying to defend the United States history. Um, the clip about the lady who, I remember you played that clip a long time ago. Well, I shouldn't say a little while ago. I think it was York County. Um, she called the parent a nigger. Um, and it's just to see how long it took them. I mean, this was a blatant, or caught on tape in front of people calling someone a nigger. And it still took months to get this person to resign from that spot. And I'm sure they didn't touch one in that clip. I'm, I wish they would have. Um, spoke about what type of compensation package she was given um, as she stepped away. Um, the last thing I wanted to add was um, the guy just spoke about shaking hands. And um, it was funny because I was um, been watching some of the political theater. And um, I watched um, you know, them in the White House. And um, Trump walked around and shaked everyone's hand. And it just... You know, put everything back into the perspective that these are all a bunch of uh, Freemasons. Um, watching how they're standing, um, I mean, it was just a, it was just a, a large meeting. It looked like um, it was, it was very, it was very obvious. And um, you know, that regardless of what type of 
um, conflicts that they put out there in the media, um, they're all part of the same thing. Um, so just be very careful in watching that. Um, also, I've been um, quite impressed with the job that the new president has been doing. Um, every day puts a smile on my face. Um, last thing I wanted to say, Gus, is um, the lady kind of spoke on it. One of the things I would love to see someone with your um, with your knowledge, your understanding of the system, write about is how black people are being um, manipulated inside of the industries, like the, in, in particular the music. Um, you don't know how many black people I meet on a day-to-day basis. When you ask them what they do, they are some type of musician and um, trying to get a deal, and um, just just how that whole thing plays out. I think it shows how a lot of things play out within um, the system, how, you know, put in a position to take less and, and give more and, um, and and how you can, you know, have someone shaking your hand one day and um, um, taking all your money the next. Um, I just think that's a, a very good thing to write about because a lot of these young kids in particular, young adults who um, want to be musicians, they have no idea. Um, just how racist that system is. Can I mute my line? Thank you. Can I be heard again? Yes, sir. Uh, is it just me or nobody else heard of the uh, the movie United Kingdom? I saw a clip on it. Okay. <laughs> I haven't heard anything. Yeah, as I mentioned. Okay, I, I was just wondering because I, no, nobody else. Uh, I, I, I've heard of the movie uh, Get Off, but I never, I never saw a clip of it. But I, I've seen constantly this clip on United Kingdom. Uh, the the male uh, actor, black male, has been getting quite a bit bit of work uh, over the past. Three, three or four years. Uh, he is actually, I believe, from Africa. Uh, the setting is in Africa, I, I believe it is. And he probably was, uh, quote unquote, European educated, like a lot of Africans are. And uh, somewhere along the way, whether within Europe or Africa, since there are a lot of white people who are in Africa, even born in Africa, uh, he, uh, quote unquote, fell in love with this white woman. And I put emphasis on falling in love with this white woman. Uh, and, uh, he had, he had to make some sort of choice between, uh, assisting and or solving the problem of racist white supremacy and, and being with her. <laughs> so, I mean, it gets, it gets even worse from there. I mean, it's, it's, it's enough for me to get kind of nauseated as as it is, uh, but uh, it gets even worse from there uh, as far as that concern. And as I mentioned before, uh, just another uh, propagandized uh, uh, article uh, that uh, basically is telling uh, primarily non-white people, primarily non-white black people that, uh, look, if we just have sex with one another and or become emotionally, uh, uh, you niggers anyway, become emotionally dependent upon 
the upon us, then uh, the problem of racism and white supremacy would improve and or be solved. You know, that's basically what those type of movies are uh, basically about. Uh, unfortunately, uh, too many of us still fall for them and say to ourselves, go to sleep that night after we go come home from the movie and talk about it maybe a little bit and decide, you know, there is some good white people around and they let me go off to sleep, I guess, you know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> beware. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that. Thank you. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, I just wanted to comment on uh, the the email that you read from the black female. Um, I I definitely at, at first when you were reading the email, I felt like or the first email, not the update. I felt like, okay, well, maybe she shouldn't have um, did the, uh, did the uh, character witness. Um, but then, you know, as you were speaking and, like, actually, and also as she came to a conclusion by herself, thinking that she should go ahead and tell the truth about the the, the racist, I don't know if, she's, if you would still consider her a suspect or not, I, I did start to kind of understand her, her reasoning. Um, the thing that troubled me the most was that the it, it it displays once again that some some of these white females they are not that different from their white male, white man counterparts as far as lusting after black bodies and I remember listening to a, a episode or a show where you had um, Dr. Curry on and he was talking about how there's really not that much evidence about um, how white women may have raped black women or black men, or I think he might have been saying black women. Um, it was just, he was kind of spec- speculating about it, but um, I feel like we do have these subtle um, examples of how these white women are somehow lusting after black women, and I know that that's definitely something that is definitely personal and troubling to me. So I would definitely, the only thing that I could add um, is that I would definitely hope that she distanced herself from this white woman, which I'm assuming she would have to, or if the outcome would arise that she would probably distance herself from this white woman, but also maybe with the other, with the other black female, I think she said her name was Sam, hopefully that she would actually distance, maybe even speak to her about distancing herself from her too. So maybe to not even be raped possibly raped by this by this woman especially if she keeps trying to make these advances um and i also did agree with you as far as just trying to or i know that um well you had said you know since it's a character with this and, and since it's something personal she she doesn't necessarily have to say the facts but i know that i, I kind of feel like maybe if she were to maybe make it concise that might not um that might actually keep the the potential racist white supremacists whoever she's explaining it to might keep their attention um a, a little bit longer instead of going through um well this is what i was wearing this is what she was wearing if it's not so pertinent to the story um just referencing the the, the situation with the box it was a little bit hard to follow i could be an error I, I, I'm, and i'm not saying that i'm not uh, that's all I had. Thank you for allowing me to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak again, um, Gus. I was going to suggest to to the uh, person who was going to give the the um, testimony or deposition on the uh, character of this uh, white female. Uh, it's, it, I would just say best thing is to be as um, non-emotional as far as like giving any sort of adjectives that will indicate that she has an opinion. Just be straight factual. I think this person has put so much um, of who she is as a racist out there for you to be able to speak to that it'll all speak for itself because I think once you add any sort of opinion to it, then it'll kind of um, take away from it and it can also potentially backfire in regards to her response to you. Whereas if you're just more um, descriptive and objective, but not necessarily emotional, I think that'll help as well. And, um, oh, guys, I, I thought of a, uh, a topic that you can write on. I think I've heard you speak about this uh, quite eloquently in the past, and I think it's something if you um, were to write about would be um, pretty profound, if, and that would be just how the system uh, shifts our consciousness as victims to blame other victims rather than focusing on the problem. I think that you've done quite a great job over the years of articulating that and how it works. And I think that um, there's enough examples out there um, that would be able to help a lot of people who are trying to have a greater understanding of the system and how it creates that sort of mind control where we operate very emotionally towards each other. Um, but like Neely Fuller says, we're all on the same slave ship, essentially, but we're all fighting amongst ourselves and not in the hull of the ship. So, I mean, excuse me, that was the metaphor. I do apologize. Um, but just, you know, for us to be in the same situation and, 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 and attacking one another when we're all being victimized by the same people at the same time. Um, thank you very much. And I'll meet my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, yes, the caller uh, 9440. We can hear you, sir. Uh, good evening, Gus, and uh, everybody listening in. Uh, I appreciate the last caller for making that reminder. Um, I didn't get a chance to uh, listen live to the uh, broadcast you had with the uh, Reverend uh, Evans, um, but uh, I listened to it in whole, and I made the mistake of talking about it with my wife, and yeah, you just got to, <laughs> you have to adhere to uh, a code, and kind of refrain from if you know that non-white black person is does not fully is a, remember their victim they confuse themselves and they do not have a grasp of the system in its totality that some subjects aren't you may not want to discuss or broach at certain times and so you know uh, I just I kind of made the mistake of, of talking about it and it just kind of, I don't know, it just, to me, it just exacerbated me a little bit, even though I, I did not press my wife any further about it. So I was just, uh, it's just a good reminder, keep in mind. And, uh, you know, uh, still, that was still a very interesting broadcast. And, um, you know, hopefully I can use that and, uh, you know, kind of keep it, as far as uh, using it in counter-racist uh, logic and actions, uh, thoughts, speech, and actions that I have uh, in society. And so uh, I appreciate that. Thanks, Gus. You can move my line. Anybody else have commentary they wanted to get in before we wrap things up? 
I was going to say while I'm checking the uh, the commentary. I heard you, uh, Thomas, in New York. Just like the portion, the paragraph early on. This is for the female who wrote in about giving being the character witness. Like where you uh, explain that uh, these microaggressions, I prefer to ignore but take note of it. Uh, I fake ignorance or feign laughter. I mean, in my opinion, that's the sort of thing I would, you know, edit out uh, because they're not really interested in, uh, I don't think, um, they're not really interested in how you personally processed uh, each and every event and how you, you know, what your scheme was for how you were going to deal with her. Those are the type of things that I would take out. That's interesting. That's what I mean when I said at first it kind of read like something for a counter-racist audience, not really a deposition. Like, uh, I would... Uh, if anything, I would just try and edit it down so you can really just focus right on examples you think that best illustrate her character. Uh, and then if you want to have like a paragraph or so where you kind of assess things at the end uh, so that they have your your synopsis of her character as a concluding remark. But, you know, it's kind of up to you and how you want to present things. Uh, Thomas in New York? Um, I didn't have a comment, but I had a question for the... Uh, non-white female who's in a tragic arrangement? Uh, caller, uh, ma'am, are you still with us? Uh, you were speaking about Get Out. I don't know if she uh, gave her name out before. Are you still with us, ma'am? Yes, ma'am. Right on. Uh, my question is, um, being uh, someone who's uh, more aware of the system of racism and white supremacy, and um, knowing that you are in an interracial relationship now, um, do you think that you can be an effective counter-racist being in that relationship? Um, that That's a great question, and that's something that um, I'm constantly asking myself. Um, I do consider myself a Christian, which has um, kind of given me a, a different context from which to, to view the world. But to answer your question, I do think that I can. I have seen changes in my husband um, who um, I would identify uh, you know, as a white supremacist when I, I was not aware of that when we got married. But from the time that we've been married until now, you know, things have, he, he has shown me um, some of those characteristics. Um, I believe and I, I do feel strongly that I have enough um, personal self-respect and, and enough knowledge of my history in which he's changed uh, quite a bit more. Um, but I, I, I recognize the delicacy of my, my situation. If it was just a relationship, I would have been gone a long time ago, but because I'm married, it, it's a lot more, more delicate, but uh, yes, I, I do feel like I, I am. And this show has helped me tremendously as well as uh, the, the writings of Dr. Francis Cresswell and decoding and understanding um, what exactly I'm, I'm doing and what I'm in. Fascinating. Area 8 dominated the uh, discussion for the, that's why I say generally, uh, we say 8 is off the table for the compensatory uh, call-in because uh, this tends to happen <laughs> where it will dominate the dialogue uh it is important but certainly other things are are also important in terms of solving this problem also we will be here on uh the 28th right at the end of the month wrapping up black history month uh with the situation if folks remember we talked about the documentary film indefensible with the u albany three these are the three black female scholars uh, up in new york 
last year where the incident happened on the bus about a year ago now the incident happened on the bus and uh, they were the only ones who got charged they initially said that these whites on the bus were drunk and assaulted them and then they waited and came back a few weeks later and said oh no 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 these you know black females they just made the whole thing up and they lied and sullied our good uh the reputation of our good school and they charged one of convicted uh one of these black female students uh saying that she lied uh, under oath made this whole cockamamie thing up and the other two uh black female students uh their case is ongoing uh some of the folks who have been at the university of albany uh, who have been speaking on their behalf and supporting them. Uh, Dr. Chandler, she's a black female and professor at UAlbany. She'll be with us this coming Tuesday to continue talking about the case, to give us the update uh, on the two cases that are still pending uh, with this whole situation and her assessment now that it's been a whole year, basically, uh, of what this case reveals about racism, white supremacy. But that'll be normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And you can go back in the archives, check out when we discussed this previously, uh, and you can watch the film online um, where they give you more of the details about the whole situation. They have some of the uh, archive uh, footage as well. Uh, with that, uh, we pretty much did our three hours. Uh, we will be back, as I just stated, uh, with the program at the beginning of the week. Uh, we'll also have uh, Workplace Racism. That's every Thursday. Delectable Negro coming up next Friday. I'm sure the other broadcasts. Just check Black Talk Radio Network or the Facebook page, and you will get all of the updates for future broadcasts of The Cows. You can certainly follow our Facebook page as well, uh, and you'll see all of the updates for upcoming programs. Uh, if you have uh, questions guest suggestions, gripes, complaints, uh, feel free to drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com and uh, we can also for people if you are looking to get in contact with folks who happen to be in your part of the world uh, you can let me know just put that in the subject uh, like Texas contact California contact Canada contact. Uh, if you do that, we'll try and make sure we uh, connect you with other folks in your part of the world who've emailed and said that they want to uh, have contact and, and talk to some other folks about counter-racist ideas. With that, thanks again for tuning in. As I state consistently, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, it's already dangerous enough under the system. We do not want to add to that danger by not being in our correct mind, uh, by being intoxicated. There's no evidence that tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, any other narcotics are going to help us to solve the problem. Dr. Welsing, Dr. Cambon, Mr. Fuller, they would recommend and encourage sobriety for victims of white supremacy. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. 
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.